listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Another episode, episode thirty-five of the GGTMC. Uh, it's good to be back. Are you excited about this week's coverage here, Large William? Very excited. This is this might be the most contemporary episode we've done with uh, with both films. I think. Uh, possibly. Yeah, I'd have to go through and look, but I can't. Just thinking about that, I can't believe we're thirty-five episodes in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're getting up there, man. Yeah, we are. And with adding those Trillo GGTMCs to the stuff, we're starting to cover a lot of films, and uh, it's getting pretty crazy. Um, yeah, this week we are covering uh, Bronson from 2009. With uh, it's a Nicholas Winding Refn film, so uh, this will be our fourth Nicholas Winding Refn film. Uh, which does he have the lead now? He does have the lead now. <laughs> yes, and we are also covering Crow's Episode Zero from Takashi Miike. Who this is actually our first Miike. Which is kind of surprising if you think about it. Actually, we could cover two Mike films a week and be booked for a year. <laughs> for a year, <laughs> for the whole run of the show, man. Until we're in a retirement home. Guy's been working since like '91, and he has 80 fucking films. <laughs> prolific. He is the epitome of prolific. Yes, he's like he's like the '70s. Okay, I mean, you know, everybody's fucking everybody. But uh, <laughs> at least with Crows, he came out uh, hopefully on the good end. Well, you'll find out here in just a little bit, but. That's pretty much it for intros. I really don't have a whole lot more to add. Uh, make sure to stick around for the end of the show for the listener content drawing. Uh, I think that's about all we got. Um, I want to pimp again that next week we are covering, uh, another, we're doing another trilogy, Trilogy GTMC, with Miles from Show Show, and we are very excited about that. The Penitentiary Trilogy with Leon Isaac Kennedy and uh, <laughs> what has to be one of my favorite performances in cinema history by Ernie Hudson. I'm not going to tell you which film it's in, but just, just trust me. <laughs> Ernie Hudson, you heard me. <laughs> oh yeah, isn't he? He's bald, I believe in it. Yes, yes, <laughs> he's a Ghostbuster. Yes. Oh, he busts all right. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, so I think that's about all we got. You got anything you'd like to add here in the beginning? I certainly do. I think, as fans of genre cinema and as big fans of Asian genre cinema, um, I think we certainly need to mention the passing of, of two legendary. Uh, actors, and that's Shi Kien of uh, Enter the Dragon fame, and a myriad of other films. So he was Mr. Han and Enter the Dragon. That's how most of us would mm-hmm. initially know him. And I'd said to you that Enter the Dragon was probably the most important film of my childhood because it opened up so many doors for me. Um, and of course, Mr. David Carradine. And, and um, we won't go into the, the details of that investigation because it is sort of a lurid thing that's been ongoing. And I certainly wouldn't want to talk about speculation or what people's hypothesis is on what's happening. Uh, it remains a, a sad day, and it was ironic that these two men connected to Bruce Lee both passed on the same day. So uh, rest in peace peace to both of them. And uh, you know, a lot of great stuff in those catalogs. Yeah, that uh, the David Carradine one, the reason why I'm not talking about it much is it really hit me pretty hard. I mean, that came out of nowhere. And that's, uh, you know, when people pass away, it's sad enough. But when somebody passes away like David Carradine, who we've talked about on the show often, 
it's really it's, it's like a you know it's like cold water on the face while you're asleep or a slap across the face you know it's like wow you know and it just it just goes back to remind you of how you know fragile life is and and things like that and Mr. Han he lived to be 90 something so that guy had a nice long life <laughs> yeah he was in his mid 90s man that's that's impressive he was straight out of a comic book that's so. what happens when you're straight out of a comic book. You live to be almost 100 years old. Well, that makes sense because a lot of characters in comics are approaching the 100-year age. So Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it is a, a terrible thing, and uh, I do wish uh, their families well and stuff. And I think we're going to have to definitely get into that Kill Bill volume 2 sometime soon, me and you. So Yes, we are that. or um, There's certainly a lot of stuff, and especially in Carradine's catalog, oh, that God. is ripe for some... <laughs> so much. We ought to do... We ought to do Kill Bill Volume 2, and what's that one he did that was Bruce Lee's script? Was it Cross, Circle of Iron or something like that? Yeah, Circle of Iron. There's the one, what is it? Uh, oh, it's sort of like a jousting post-apocalyptic one. I can't remember the name right now. Oh, well, I, I probably can't either, because if I go, I'd have to go to Carradine's IMDb, because, God, that guy made a lot of movies. Yeah, it's not Knight Riders. That's the Romero one. Anyway, it's sort of like a post-apocalyptic uh, one, but there's so much in there. Yes. So we'll look into doing one of those for you guys pretty soon, and uh, we wanted to do Kill Bill Volume 2 anyway to follow up to our Kill Bill Volume 1 coverage, so maybe that'll be upcoming episode, so we'll see what happens. All right, so I think that is it. I think we'll go to break, and when we come back, we'll do a review of our first film, which is going to be the Refn film, Bronson. All right, we'll be back right after this. Monday, Monday, happy days. Monday, happy days. Monday, happy days. The weekend comes. Throughout broadcast history, only the greatest of shows have become popular enough to support a successful spin-off. We believe that time has come for the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since Introducing... Family Movie Night. back from break ready to go into some uh reviewing here all right and that was uh again fmn podcast family movie night podcasts are hopefully very successful spinoff i hope for uh doc and kk 
It's great that a show that covers such lurid material like ours spawns a family-oriented show. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, list, I finally had a chance to listen to their first episode. After, and I've seen Star Trek in theater with my father-in-law. And it's a great episode, man. And, and uh, you know, I, I called in a voicemail to them. And, and I think it's, it's um, a wonderful thing that they're doing because when my son is of age, you know, I want to – I don't want it, to – it's a minefield because what do you show your kids? So – uh, I think it's a great thing that they're doing. It's it's a good bonding experience for the family, so I really can't say enough about what they're doing. Nice work. All right, here we go. We're going to cover Bronson, 2009, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, one of our favorite of the new filmmakers. Tagline for the film is the man, the myth, the celebrity. Uh, so I like that quite a bit. Uh, I'll give a basic plot synopsis here. A young man who was sentenced to seven years on prison, or on prison, in prison for robbing a post office, ends up spending 30 years in solitary confinement. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say because then it becomes, well, I mean, you could say this. During this time, his own personality is supplanted by his alter ego, which is Charles Bronson. Uh, so that is really about it. I picked this film. It's uh, a buzz film, to say the least. We both managed to see it. So I think I'll kick it over to you and we'll get started on this thing. Yes, when you say buzz film, I remember when I would first seen this trailer, I, I could not believe how excited I was for it. It I think the title of the thread was, I put, uh, I'll be stunned if this isn't on all of our top ten lists for the year. Yes. And that uh, may have been a little bit of um, fanboy hyperbole on my part. But <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, this film opens up with a very, very gripping monologue about um, Bronson, how he is where he is, and how he aspires to be a celebrity. Uh, and he, he says, well, I can't sing, and I can't fucking act. I'm running out of choices, really. And you just know from this opening, probably two, three, four-minute monologue, that it's going to be one of those performances. It's very charismatic. Um, it's it's much like sort of Bill the Butcher, uh, Chopper. Um, you know, it's just Tom Hardy really transforms in this film uh, on screen to the point where you do not see Tom Hardy. Uh, you see Charles Bronson, meaning, again, the character, not the the GGTMC god. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, the thing that hits you initially, and you and I had said this, I think most reviews have said this, um, and it doesn't require this keen, trained eye to see, is that this film is very, very much uh, indebted stylistically, thematically, uh, to Stanley Kubrick's The Clockwork Orange. Um, so much so that when I showed a friend of mine who, who's a sort of average uh, movie fan, uh, he just said, wow, it looks like a Stanley Kubrick movie. And my wife last night came in. She'd watched about five minutes of it. And she goes, this, this really reminds me of A Clockwork Orange. So I think uh, you had said to me that Refn had, had sort of denied that um, that, that was the case. But I, I can't see how he wasn't heavily influenced by A Clockwork Orange. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind this film is influenced by not only Clockwork Orange, but Kubrick in general. <laughs> I mean, this is, uh, I'm a huge Kubrick fan and I watch his films, uh, relig relig blah, 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 blah. religiously. There we go. <laughs> and, uh, this is the most Kubrickian film I have ever seen, not made by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, the way the shots are framed, the way the shots are composed, uh, the classical music during a little bit of the old ultraviolence. It is just it, it. You're right. It's a most Kubrickian film, not made made by Mr. Kubrick. Yes. Um, it's that. So it's that. It's the love child of that and Chopper. 
the film with Eric Bana, directed by, I can't remember his name right now, he also directed uh, The Assassination of Jesse James, which is one of the few films you and I disagree on. Yes, um, what is that guy's name? Isn't it Dominic something? Dominic, yeah, I can't remember right now. Um, but it's really is the love child of those two, uh, in that it's anchored by an absolutely mesmerizing performance. Yes, Power, um, powerhouse is the appropriate word. Yeah. Yes, powerhouse. <laughs> Um, now we, we've talked about that's what it is, but I think also early on we get to see what we've learned through watching the trilogy, the pusher trilogy, our two refin conventions stylistically. Um, we see the character's name in front of a black backdrop. It's very starkly and uh, boldly uh, there, right in red letters, mm-hmm. uh, with the character in fr- behind their name. So this is something we've seen visually in uh, in all the pusher films, and it's something that clearly refin likes to do. Um, and further to that, we see in this one the screen awash in red as our main character uh, is about to do something. But instead of sort of a lustful red, this is uh, a rage-filled red as, as we see a nude Bronson, a nude bloodied Bronson, takes on five bobbies, and that's police, uh, in a cage the size of the barbarian's uh, <laughs> cage. <laughs> the, the, the size of the, uh, the arena they fought in? The arena, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say this about the opening, uh, the film, it is a mesmerizing opening four and a half minutes. It yes. really sucks you in that four and a half. That opening is pretty fucking amazing. The way it's so quiet and so visceral without even really doing anything. It's, it's almost, it's almost like it, it assaults you, the, the viewer. And, uh, I really, really love that opening. It's a great way to open a film. It is a great, and you know who else it reminds me of a little bit is Gaspar Noé, I think because of the reds he used in Irreversible, and the way that assaults your senses immediately, uh, a very visceral experience. Again, that's maybe um, what it also reminded me of. And it reminds me, to be honest of you, a lot of, of a lot of the good directors working today, it reminds me a bit of Aronofsky's Requiem, the way they use a lot of the still photography uh, at times yeah. um, was in line with that, with the sound design of that. Um, very clearly, this is a pretentious film, um, which I don't mind if it's a skilled filmmaker such as Refn. Um, I just don't like when, when middle-brow films try to be pretentious, quite honestly. Yeah. There is no doubt in my mind this is a very pretentious film. Uh, I'm trying to think of how I'm going to explain this without... Uh, I mean, I'm not worried about giving any plot away because there's not a whole lot of plot here in the film to begin with. Uh it is pretentious, and it's what it is. Is it's a great filmmaker, and that might have slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> that, yes, that's 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 kind of that's kind of my saying uh, to it in a in a blunt form. Uh, but I'll, I'll have much more to say. I, I, I probably should go ahead and let you just keep going on your notes because I'll, I'll have plenty more to say. And I, I'm curious the further you go along because we haven't really talked about this film much off the air. I'm curious to go along if uh, if our notes start to match up here because it sounds like we might be heading that way. Okay. Um, so we can see, yes, the pretension a little bit in the film. And I'm okay with that, like I said, when it's handled by someone skilled. Um, getting back to Clockwork, though, for just a moment, we get the scene at the theater, which to me was very reminiscent of Clockwork as well. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, you can go through this film from minute one to minute 92, and you can find something similar to Clockwork all through it. And almost every scene. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The only so, thing is it isn't post-apocalyptic, but... Which I think Clockwork was supposed to be post-apocalyptic, basically, basically a future film. Uh, yes. But because I think it gets the vibe, I think because of the some of the the way the characters are dressed in this film, it's similar to what Kubrick was going for with his future dressing, 
uh, you know, future costumes he had in his characters. The costumes aren't as absurd and over the top in this film, but it's for some strange reason, it seems like some of the characters, like, you know, wearing Elvis glasses and wearing these types of things, just like things they picked up and stuff. And you never really get a sense that the film's set in any certain time period. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I kind of have to disagree with you. I think it, I, I agree with you that it's very highly stylized. Yes. More so, it, it's exaggerated, but I think it's very clearly mid 70s to mid 80s to me. Because especially with the, the synthy disco vibe, uh, the clothes, um, there's a Pet Shop Boys song, and that was sort of the height of the 80s. Yeah, that was a, that was a good song. I, I love the Pet Shop Boys, to be quite honest with you. They're one of the better uh, pop groups from the 80s. And it's funny, we get the Pet Shop Boys weeks after Pino DiNaggio does the worst Pet Shop Boys impersonation in the history of cinematic scores. Well, Pino DiNaggio just cannot live that down. <laughs> he won't. <laughs> On our show, he's never going to live down the Barbarian score. <laughs> no. But see, he broke our hearts a little bit with that one. Um, but no, I see what you're saying. I think because it's a highly stylized 70s. I mean, this to me is a combination of a highly stylized 70s and a very, from what I perceive, to be a very accurate a snapshot of England in the time, much like Shane Meadows does in, um, uh, was it once, not once, this is England. Um, that to me looked give me a very accurate look from from the style to the just the look of the the flats or the row houses or whatever uh, in England at that time. So I, don't, I think it's a combination. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can see where you got that and stuff, but I felt like the film just kind of existed in its own universe. So I, I could see that we see that differently. I, I can see the seventies thing, but I just felt like it existed in its own little world. But weird. I, I think because Bronson exists in his own fucking little world. No doubt about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, the thing with Bronson is, and the further along we go, the further we see this, it just seems like an animal. Every inch of him is ready to explode. It's this tightly coiled, you know, fists are always clenched sort of fury that whenever you see him on screen, you along with the characters he's with are on the edge of your seat because you don't know what the fuck he's going to do or what he's going to unleash. Yeah, I think the pretension might come from the fact that I think Refn was going for, from what I understand, they didn't really talk to the actual Charles Bronson himself uh, really much about this film. So either they didn't get his cooperation or they just did, decided to ignore it. But I think he takes the character of Bronson in the film and kind of makes the character of Bronson violence itself. Uh, that and, the, and that's where you get the pretension, I think, because he's never really fully explained. Well, no, he's not, and I think that is sort of a shame. And, and one of the notes I have, and I'll bring it up now, that I, once I'd finished the film, I was going to say that the film in a large way doesn't really cover anything else but his life as an inmate and the violent path of his life and his choice as almost violence as an art form and as a religion. But, you know, you could stake the claim that, well, if that's all he was, then that's what the film is because that's what he is. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I would want to do more research into that. I know that um, I think it's a bit of a shame because they touch on it briefly, but um, in doing a little bit of research, not a lot, the, the actual Charles Bronson, uh, he's won awards for some of his art, and I don't know if it's what it's for. He's published some books, um, uh, one on <laughs> sort of fitness in with uh, very limited resources yeah. and space. <laughs> um, so it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like I said to you, it's almost like an essay or film or cinematic essay and, on, and on none five. of that none of that stuff is discussed in the film none of that stuff's discussed that he has written books that uh, he's uh, he, well they they do kind of address that he is kind of a makeshift artist 
but they never address anything other than the fact that it seems like he's just doing it to pass time in prison. Yeah, and then to sort of, and there's an ulterior motive to get himself into a position where he can do something that he enjoys, which is wreak havoc by taking a hostage and so on and so forth. It, it is very similar to Clockwork Orange again, and that, you know, Alex isn't really fully explained in Clockwork Orange either. Uh, and it's really just a study on violence, and that's all that Kubrick, I think, was going for is that, you know, human beings are inherently violent. And uh, uh, even though, you know, we're very civilized people, uh, it seems like, you know, violence is so much a part of our lives, rather. You know, I'm not a violent person. I know you're not a violent person, or at least we can say that we're not violent people now. Now, as youths, we probably were a little bit more violent because, you know, we're boys, we're men, you know. Uh, we're not boys, two men. Let me just go ahead and I say that right now. I was just going to say Motown Philly's back again. <laughs> yeah, I, when I said that, I was like, oh, yeah, man, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, that, I think that that's what's trying to come across here is that violence is inherent in all of us. And I think that that's, again, that's where the Clockwork Orange uh, – I mean – it's really, to me, this film, to me, is an homage, and I said this to you, I did say this to you off the air, an homage to Kubrick's film work, and it's also uh, almost a blatant homage in, uh, to uh, Clockwork Orange. I mean, it's it's amazing to me how similar the films are. Uh, you know, you got the character addressing the viewer uh, through narration, and even in this point, even looking directly at the camera, so he takes it even a step further. Uh, you know, breaking the fourth wall and actually talking to the audience, which I think was a great convention, by the way, the stage stuff that uh, Tom Hardy does. Well, I, I love the stage stuff. There's a lot of great stage stuff with the painting. And there's a scene that I really like of all the stage stuff. Might be my favorite where um, I'm to look for my notes so I can cross it off. And I don't mention him again like a fucking parrot. But uh, it's the scene where he you see half of him and he's talking as if it's him. And then he spins around on one foot and it's got the white makeup and almost like this Betty Boop hairstyle painting it onto his head and he and he's got uh press lee press on nails on he's a woman like a psychiatrist or a, his lawyer or something talking to him and then he would spin around back and forth uh, you know just quite the performer yes and it, it's quite mesmerizing you would think that would be really cheesy but it's like almost like a vaudeville uh you know type of circus performer type thing and uh hardy really pulls it off and uh yeah you were thinking the same thing i was thinking and there's a lot of great scenes where he's smiling and laughing and then all of a sudden he'll just stop yeah, just stone, just stops on a dime, dead serious face. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> there's something wrong with this dude. <laughs> and it's almost like that scenes with um, with guards and, and people that he's involved with because the, he'll be fine. And then it's just like, it just turns a 180. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, because know, at, never- at all times, whenever Tom Hardy's on screen, which is most of the film, at all times, because of the way it's set up, you're uneasy. You just know something's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you're, you're waiting for this fucking firecracker to go off. Yes, and it goes off uh, quite often. <laughs> now, speaking of going off, I, I've never, in all the films I've seen, all the transgressive material I've seen, I've never seen a man squat down, shit in his own hand, and put it on like makeup. <laughs> it is a cinema first for me. Uh, yeah. Hopefully it's a cinema last for both of us. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't nice. Uh, that was uncomfortable. And that's not done by the character of Bronson himself. That's done by another character in the film. But, uh, yeah. Uh, mm, yeah, let's just not talk about that anymore. <laughs> well, the funny, I, I will only say this. This is what's happened is Bronson's character has been bounced around from prison to prison to prison. And he's finally put in, um, like a mental institution. And when he sees the man doing this, his face says what we're thinking. It's it's a little bit scared and a little bit un- it's very uncomfortable at what he's seeing because he's not dealing with the usual knuckle dragging black and white people. He's being dealing with people with mental illness now, and we can see he's a little bit 
little bit wigged out by this. Yeah, and I think it's because again, it's a, it's a comment on that uh, you know, if you met this guy Charles Bronson, uh, you would think, oh, this guy's crazy. But then you put the this guy you think is crazy into a, a house of people who are really crazy, and all of a sudden he doesn't seem as crazy, and he's confused. I think the viewers are confused. I mean, I know I was confused watching some guy shit into his own hand. Uh, disturbing, disturbing stuff. Uh, and it, it's like a minute long sequence. It's not like it's ten seconds. Yeah, he like really he had to really work that. Yeah, he, he was he was a little uh, he, was a lot of cheese in that diet maybe. Oh yeah, he was working it, man. <laughs> I mean, and, and you could tell this was something he did often because his, I know if I was squatting like that, my legs would start to shake. Man, this guy's <laughs> legs were fucking solid as a rock. I was just thankful that it was used as makeup and not the other route, which I thought I was scared to death it was getting ready to go. Yeah, I thought he was going to eat that cheese again. Oh, but. man. Oh, dude. I, I was so – I had my mouth covered. I was like, oh, God, please don't do this. Please I'm glad don't I wasn't this. eating a soft serve ice cream cone at the time. <laughs> please don't do this to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a, a, just a, an uncomfortable scene. Um, I really love the washed-out walls of all the prisons he's in, whether it's a washed-out yellow or a washed-out blue and peeling paint and the bars. Um, yeah. It just really gave it this dreary sense of of existence behind these walls. I mean, he's circling around in his room and the monotony. And he talks about this hellish monotony of it. I really liked that. And I thought it was able to reasonably, uh, accurately convey what I would think it would be like. Yeah, the prison system. I can't imagine. Yeah, the course. prison system's in pretty bad shape, evidently, in, the, in England in these days. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, a couple quotes I want to go over here. When he's in the mental institution, this guy comes up to me and says, I know you're not crazy and I'm not crazy and it's not. And he says to him, he propositions him and this fucking scumbag says, you, me, and a nine-year-old girl. It will be Loveology. And that sounds like a Prince album, first of all. <laughs> Loveology? Uh, yeah, it does. Loveology. But I just, oh, fuck. And that guy certainly gets his. So I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but. Just uh, yeah, I'll, I'll bring that up again in the. Uh... And the make or break, actually. Okay. Uh, I love that uh, Bronson, he's talking about someone and how he's not soft. And he says, Charlie B ain't no pillar, pillow biter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of great dialogue that uh, Tom Hardy has in here. And the way he says it and stuff, it's very slang-filled and uh, very, very English. Very, very English. Very English. And fucking cunt is said to artistic perfection. Yeah. You fucking cunt. <laughs> a lot of times he says it. And every time, it never gets old with me. Um, and I talked about the faded walls and the paint peeling and everything and it was really odd after 40 minutes of seeing nothing but this to see him in a house again with pictures on the walls and you can see he's almost uncomfortable or or doesn't really know how to act uh, when he goes home for a very short period of time that was really set up well yeah you're right that that was really well done because you get so used to him being in these certain scenarios and then all of a sudden he's thrust back into the real world and it almost the real world kind of it's almost it, it's it's similar to me to the way it is in Clockwork Orange how the real world is odd in the beginning and then Alex ends up going to the uh, the jail or the you know into that experiments uh, the, the reform yeah thing. and uh, I think it's called the Luvetica experience or something or something like that I don't I can't remember yeah. it off the top of my head but uh, he goes through that and stuff and then he ends up coming back home and remember they replaced it I hope I'm not giving anything away here it's just Clockwork, Clockwork Orange yeah it's Clockwork Orange oh when he goes back and his yeah. parents have a uh, someone living there it's almost like a replacement <laughs> yes and it's just he doesn't fit in again all of a sudden everything has changed even though nothing has changed it's it's because he has changed so 
as crazy as Bronson was, uh, it's funny. He goes into this crazy world of prison reform and loony bins and whatnot, and he comes out, and the world seems so much stranger than even some of because you're so used to being in that crazy world. The world even seems strange at this point, and uh, you know he kind of ends up being in like a uh, a Fight Club s situation, which I've never seen a person uh, fight dogs before. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was very interesting, and that gives us one of the better quotes in the film he, he's talking to his sort of handler and he says to, he, he gives him 23 pounds for a fight and he says I gave you magic in there yeah. I guess it's magic you pissed on a gypsy in the middle of nowhere it's hardly the hottest ticket in town darling Yes, uh, as my note says golden showers yet again on the GGTMC <laughs> we're back with that I don't know if there was any rape or not so we're, we're at least we're back with the golden showers and there's no eye patches either but no no eye patches I, I don't think there was any rape which I was kind of surprised I thought at some point in time we were going to see some rape yeah, you would think. There were some uncomfortable moments where rape was crossing my mind. <laughs> I agree, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Uh, I only got a few more notes. I thought there was a really funny quote when he does get out. He goes to see his uncle. His uncle's a bit of a swinger of sorts. He's got this almost like the Spice Girls bus where it's in this like rundown apartment, but you go inside and there's red velvet on the walls. And there's all sorts of people inside, and he's introducing his nephew to them, and he says, ladies and gentlemen in ladies' attire. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of cross-dressers there. Did that scene remind you of Dean Stockwell's scene in Blue Velvet? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it totally reminded me of when Dennis Hopper takes Kyle McLaughlin to Dean Stockwell's place. Yeah, well, that's a good call. It was just uncomfortable and odd. And let me say, for the record, that the girl that he ends up sleeping with is hideous. Oh, she's not that bad. Oh, he come on, man. Well, then, I don't know if he could have done better. Remind me of Jay Davison from uh, Crying Game, okay? <laughs> Oh boy! I, don't know. <laughs> I think there might have been, uh, you know, I think there might have been some sausage under the uh, under the skirt there, man. I hope not, man. I really hope not. Um, and, and she runs him through the ringer too, just for the for the word, for the note of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was very interesting. He always wore a suit when he was out. Yes, yes. I a very interesting choice. Uh, wonder why that was uh, from a psychological standpoint. Um, there was a great shot. This is sort of uh, one of the last, it's the last uh, uh, Clockwork Orange reference I'll make. There's a great almost fishbowl lens shot of uh, Giza, a teacher hostage, and he's painted eyes on him. He's got an apple in his mouth like a pig. And he puts a derby hat on him, Mm -hmm. very similar to the one Alex wore in uh, Clockwork Orange. So again, I mean, you really get that that Clockwork Orange vibe, of course. Yes. Um, There's just so much hardy cock in this. Yeah, and you can tell he's not Jewish. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, no, he's his just flapping around. Looks like he's nonsense. carrying around a haggis or something. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, the coin purse is on full display here in different colors because he wears body paint a lot. Yes, it's uh, um, there. he is nude often. Yes, it's like it's almost like a, a, a spiritual thing for him or, or like a philosophical thing he he puts on his war paint and fights in the nude. Yeah, his war paint, which I'll well, I'll go over my notes, but I'll go over now. His yeah. body armor is actually just Vaseline. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, he's got he's a spent- he's got a prison guard. Put it on my ass, not in my ass, on my ass. <laughs> yeah, you can't get stuffed. Yeah, get stuffed. Uh, he, uh, yeah, and these aren't compl- as good a shape as Hardy is in for this film. These are not complimentary shots of a nude man. No, no. 
There is nothing appealing about these shots. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm like, oh god, this this oh this is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, even more uncomfortable than Cattell and Bad Lieutenant. I mean, this is just uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty brave performance in a lot of ways by uh, Tom Hardy. The last note I have is that uh, one of the there's a cage of sorts that he is in at one point. I'm not going to say when in the film. It's almost like a coffin. It's got like that wire cage and basically it's because he's fucked up everything he's done uh, at a given point in the film and they put him in this cage almost like in solitary where it's like a coffin but a cage like he can't fucking move the guy has to sleep standing up mm-hmm. and I got I felt a sense of claustrophobia when I saw that it's, that would be awful to be in that it would be awful yeah he couldn't lay down he couldn't do anything uh, he just had to stand there and he had a space there I guess where they could feed him he probably couldn't even raise his fucking arm up because of the way how narrow it was. But yeah. anyway, he brought it on himself. Uh, those are all the notes I have. All right. So to go over a few things I'd like to add to it, uh, I will say that, you know, like the stage stuff, I thought that the film addressed uh, the narrative in interesting ways. Uh, I liked uh, that Hardy was addressing the camera, that, uh, you know, we had a vaudeville stage, basically. He's kind of given his life. It's really... Hardy's film. It's really it's really his movie. Reffin is all over it as well, but it's really Tom Hardy's movie. I mean, and he and he uh he really shines in it and stuff. Now, I don't know what he'll get out of this. I don't know if he'll get a career that Banna's gotten out of his from Chopper, but uh I hope he does well. I mean, he was good in Rock and Roller. He's good in some other things I've seen him in, uh, but he is a powerhouse in this film to say the least. I mean, it's just what a performance. And it's so similar to Chopper. Chopper is what I think is a very flawed film. Yep. But with a performance for the ages in it, yep. And uh, this is so similar to that. And it seems like about every five or six years, ten years, maybe you get films like this, where you get this like it's almost like a coming out party. You know, you, this actor that somebody else sees a lot in that nobody else sees, and then all of a sudden they just show up and and like the, they're you know like game changers, like we've talked about with filmmakers sometimes. And and Hardy is is incredibly impressive in this film. Uh, he's in great shape, uh, which he shows often. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm guessing that the reason why he fought in the nude was, uh, because clothes, I guess guards could take him down too easy with clothes on, I guess. Either that or it was something sexual or something primal for him. I don't know. I I don't think it was sexual. I think it was primal. I think maybe he, I don't know. I'm I'm just hypothesizing. Maybe he read a lot of, um, stuff about war, ancient warriors and, and their beliefs. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can only hypothesize, but it is practical. Yes. To be a greased pig when you're fighting them, because yeah. having clothes, they're going to grab you by the collar pretty quick. Yes. And take you down. So, uh, the imagery in this film all throughout it, uh, regardless of the film, I think is quite a bit flawed. Regardless, the imagery through the film is, is rather brilliant and beautiful. Uh, it is shot incredibly well. Uh, some great tracking shots, especially in the big open kind of uh, recess area for the Looney Bin, Looney Bin mates. Oh, yes. Uh, there's some really, really great tracking shots, and uh, it's nice and open and uh, very nice. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, he does that. I think he shoots these real narrow spots and then these real open spots on purpose to kind of – because every time you go back to a narrow spot, and I think it it works quite well, every time you go back to something narrow, you get the, like you say, the claustrophobia. You get these senses of, you know, him being caged animal and and whatnot because he gets to get in these open areas every now and then. I mean, there's scenes where he's outdoors and stuff. And he just looks out of place uh, outside <laughs> of anything. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And really, that's the, the real thing. I mean, I, basically, that's what I get from it is that he just never has known what to do with himself. He's just... He's violence incarnate. I mean, he just doesn't know how to do, be anything else but violence. 
and we can see though that he's not he's not an evil person no he's not, i mean he even says as much and i don't think it's necessarily just a skewed self uh opinion i i don't think he he's an evil person or a monster it's just he this is the way he expresses himself and yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, an interesting person. Yeah, it is. A, it is a pretentious film because it's all commentary. I mean, there's evidently he meets a girl. He ends up having a kid. That's dropped almost like immediately. It and I wish they had went back to that. And I wish that that's where I wish this had been a little bit more conventional uh, in terms of a biographical film. Um, and it's funny, Sammy, as as a father now, when I saw he had a son and when he got out and everything, it didn't show any of that stuff. And I thought to myself, as a father, it made me. A, uh, like him less because I thought you motherfucker, you have a child and a wife that you've left out, hung out to dry. Um, and I, they didn't even go into that anymore. And I guess again, maybe because that's not who he was, but I mean that, I, I don't know how it can't be, but I'm letting personal yeah. feelings, I guess. But I, but I think that's what you got to do. I think this film is, is similar to, well, it's not similar. It's similar to Clockwork Orange, but it's not. Cause I feel like Clockwork Orange has a narrative. Yes. I don't feel like this film has a narrative at all. I think this film's a bunch of great images and and things all slapped together. This is yes. basically the very definition of art house pretension. Yes. And uh it's kind of I don't have a problem with pretentious films. I've I've watched quite a few of them in my life, you know. I don't have a problem with it and stuff, but this one is is flawed. I mean, at least with Chopper and Clockwork Orange, those two films that is considered a hybrid of basically. At least with those two films you had a story. Uh this film, I don't feel like there's any story going on. Uh, not that I have to have one, but I, I really don't feel like it. I, I just think it, it seems like it's just one, one violent act after another, uh, and one violent setup after another, and it just it it just it falls apart slowly. I mean, it's like it's like a ball of twine. You know, it starts out really tight, and then the further it goes along, it just keeps getting loose and loose and loose, and just falls apart. And uh, yeah. that, that's how I felt about the film. You're right. I'd said that to you that the film started at a certain point for me in terms of where I thought I was going to rank it out of 10. Mm -hmm. And every 15, 20 minutes that went by, it got knocked down a quarter point, knocked down a quarter point. And thankfully, the film was only 92 minutes long because it's like a Mike Tyson fight. The first few rounds, he's looking good. And by the end, man, you, you push him those 11, 12 rounds, and he's starting to suck wind. And Yeah, and this, if this really, film would have been two hours long, it, uh, would, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. I mean, it would have been an utter fucking disaster. Yep. And but I'm still. It sounds like I didn't like the film. I'm not going to say that. What I will say is, this film is not going to be for everybody. And that I will say immediately. If you like Chopper and if you liked uh, uh, Clockwork Orange, then you should definitely check this out. If you have no interest in those films, I wouldn't waste my time with this because you're not gonna you're not gonna like this at all. <laughs> Uh, because it's the most, it's it really is the love child of those two films. And, uh, and but you know, again though, if you're just a fan of great performances, you might want to check this film out. I have to say that because some people are actually just fans of you know really great performances. Uh, this has got one of the great performances I've seen in quite some time, and I will say that. I mean, you can't deny that part. So uh, I really don't know how to recommend or not recommend the film. It's a very confusing film to me. Maybe it's going to be like a Kubrick film. Maybe it's going to be a film that, you know, five years from now I'm going to be talking about in a different light. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, because it is not conventional. It's not a conventional narrative. It's not – they took him almost as this figurehead or this this uh, personification of violence. And maybe we just don't quite know what to make of it. I, I do really like it, and I had said to you, I don't know – 
I can't see my score going down any. I can only see it going up if it does change from where I'm at with it. But yes. it's uh, it is interesting, and I am going to watch it again. And, and uh, when I get a chance, watch it with the commentary by Refin because sometimes that can reveal motivations that will enable me to appreciate the film more. Yes, I mean the film for somebody who watches as many movies as I do, and for somebody that watches as many movies as you do. It's rare that we walk away from films, uh, I think, well, what I got from it, I'm not going to say for you, but what I got from it is I kind of walked away from it just a little bit confused and perplexed. (laughs) And it just kind of confused me. Uh, So I'm sure I will revisit it. I have no doubts, as a matter of fact, that I will. But uh, it was a confusing piece, to say the least. All right, I'll kick it over to you for uh, Make or Breaks, MDTs, and scores and whatnot. All right. Listen to the, the, the mini notes being fluttered around. Yeah, no kidding. I, I almost dropped my mic again. <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> that's that's almost that's almost become like your thing now. <laughs> this is true. Um, this is almost like uh, actually never mind. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. My make or break is the opening monologue. It really grabs you by the collar and uh, really, really is engaging. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, it just it really establishes how charismatic and how powerhouse this performance is by Tom Hardy. So that's my my make or break scene. MVT, of course, no surprise here. It's Tom Hardy. This is someone I will definitely keep an eye on. Um, I know he was in Layer Cake. I didn't know him at the time because he was part of an ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he did Black Hawk Down. I haven't seen that since it first came out, so I can't remember. Right. Um, Rock and Roller, he was good in, and then of course this. So this is someone I am definitely going to keep an eye on. Um, I, again, it, he's a world class talent. It's almost like when you get you know one of these great athletes on a, on a very mediocre team. Yes, he just kind of puts them on his back and, and carries them as far as he can. Mm-hmm. That's the way I felt with this film. My score for the film, I suspect, is going to be a little bit higher than yours. Um, I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. I think it's a good film, a very good film at that, an interesting film. I think it is going to be a very divisive film that some people are going to fucking hate. Other people are going to, other people are going to probably love because from a technical standpoint, it's very well shot, very well scored, and it's got a great performance by a great director. It's just not what it could have or should have been, in my opinion. All right. Well, that's. I mean, I can. I can totally see all those points. Did the microphone fall? It did, man. <laughs> well, I caught it. I did the old Broder glove save uh, nice. as a last thing, but it, it started teetering off. Is it? Wasn't it Shokasugi who the coffee fell and a full cup of coffee and he caught it? I don't remember. I think it was in one of the ninja movies. I might be remembering wrongly. I, I can't remember anymore. Well, thankfully, I'm not dropping my cup of coffee every every time because you'd hear quite a blue episode. Uh, yes, that would be crazy. All right, my make or break for the film is, uh, and let me do say that I didn't bring this up in my review, but we did. We don't have an eye patch. We don't have a ray, but we do have a gentleman's favorite, which is a mustache, and it's an impressive one too. Oh, it certainly is. It's a little handlebar action. Nice waxed, pretty mustache. Yep, <laughs> good one. Uh, I'll have to say my make or break for the film is the scene in the uh, the insane asylum when uh, after he's spoken to the character who asked about the nine year old girl, uh, he sits down in front of him. I love the way that shot. I love what happens there. I love what transpires. I just think it's very well done. It's actually the way the tracking shot comes down to this kind of open area where people are listening to music and it shows those curtains up and stuff and it shows just enough to make you uneasy. It really is very genius. Uh, Refn is super talented. There's no doubt in my mind this guy's a world-class filmmaker. We've watched the Pusher trilogy. We like those. Those progressively got better. I think we can agree on that. Yes, and actually this, this, the moment you mentioned, Sammy, uh, 
Bronson is so drugged up when this guy first propositions him. You can tell the fury and rage in Bronson, but he's so heavily drugged that there's nothing he can do. He's almost like a you know when you see those bulls that are penned up and there's snot flying out of their nose. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. like. That's exactly what happened to Bronson. You know he wanted to fucking crush this guy's throat with his fist, yes. but he was so heavily drugged that he couldn't. Yes, and uh, you know you get a nice payoff in that scene. I think it plays quite plays out quite well. I love the tension, the way it's built. Uh, we also didn't bring up the my MVT, and the reason why I say we also didn't bring this up is uh, in our either one of our reviews. Uh, my MVT is obviously going to be Tom Hardy because there's no way it can't be. But I will say that another thing about this film that makes it similar to Clockwork Orange is it's pretty much scored with classical music, except for a couple of pop songs. Mm-hmm. So so Kubrick esque, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so incredibly Kubrickian, it's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah. Um, I almost went with the music at first, but I mean, how can you not go with Tom Hardy? I mean, this is a yeah. performance. This is up there with Mickey Rourke and the Wrestler. This is up there with uh, Eric Bana and Chopper. This is up there with uh, Daniel Day Lewis and There Will Be Blood and Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York. Yeah. This is one of those performances uh, that people stand up and say, "Whoa, okay, now I need to really pay attention to what I'm doing because this guy just blew me out of the water." And he he blows everybody in the film out of the water. That might be one of the other weaknesses of the film is that nobody else can really compete with him at any time on screen. But then again, they don't have to because he's on on screen almost yep. 80, 90% of the time. But no, no one can run with him. That's true. Even when he's quiet, he's he's uh, he's the draw of the film. So so my score for the film, I'm going to go with a 6.75. I did score quite a bit lower than you. I, I don't know that if, you know, two, three, five years from now, if I'll feel differently. But uh, it, it's possible. I didn't like a lot of Kubrick films the first time I saw him uh, growing up. So... It's possible that, uh, you know, five, six years from now that this might be one of my favorite films. I don't know. But uh, I do believe there's something here. I do believe there's something here. I just can't wrap my brain around it. So uh, that's about all I got. I think that's uh, that's it for Bronson. I think uh, we're pretty much ready to go to break and come back and do some uh, Mike. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. We'll be right back after this. Hello? Is anyone out there? This is Brother D. Is is anyone else alive? You know, you'd think with all the zombie movies I watch and review for Mail Order Zombie over at www.mailorderzombie.com, I would have been better prepared for the zombie uprising. I mean, every week I'd watch anywhere from one to three zombie movies, and my wife, Miss Bren, would join me in every episode to go over listener mail and even occasionally join me in a review of a zombie movie herself. But now, we woke up one morning and the zombies have taken over. Miss Bren went scouting for supplies, but she's been gone a long time, so I went out to look for her, and now now I just wish I'd stay home and watched more zombie movies for everyone, reading out the good ones from the bad. What? Wait a minute. Who's there? Miss Bren? You're not Miss Bren. Oh, oh no! Send more podcasters.
Uh, yeah, somewhere naked Eskimo is cringing. Let me tell you right right now. <laughs> yeah, I remember he said he hated them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he is just cringing somewhere. So I apologize for that, Esky, but uh, I cannot help it. They just put a smile on my face with the kind of gloriness of that pop rock sound. <laughs> uh, the cock rock. Kinda. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned a cock a lot in the episode. A lot in this episode. This is a cock filled episode. <laughs> Cover your ears, children. <laughs> All right, so we are doing a Mike film, so I'm going to kick it over to you and uh, get a plot synopsis going, and we'll uh, we'll get going on this thing. Okay, so there doesn't appear to be a plot synopsis, but I'm pretty sure I can drum one up. So this is Crow's Episode Zero, directed in 2007 by one Takashi Mike. Um, essentially, what this film is about is uh, it's based on a manga. It is about a high school, Suzan High School where there are a number of uh, factions of boys who are all trying to become the king of the hill at Suzuran, unite the school, and you sort of unanimously rule it. And it's about um, a couple of them and their attempt to do so. Right. So I picked this film after having finally seen it about uh, three weeks ago, Sammy, and I uh, made no secret of my love for it, and I'm very keen to hear what you think and thought about it. All right. First, let me mention that uh, a long time ago we posted on the boards a roadmap of everything we were going to cover. But you guys have got a pretty good exa- a sample this week of how the gentlemen do things. We uh, we have our roadmaps, and then we see stuff because we watch films on our own. And uh, we're like, you know what? Let's just do this instead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was no trailers for either one of these films on the uh, roadmap uh, thread. But that's the way the gentlemen do things, and uh, we'll go back and forth you know, whenever we see something. So... In case you guys are wondering why we do that kind of stuff, we didn't do it to uh, just throw a fake at you guys. No, uh, exactly. Uh, okay, so how to even address this film? Okay, so Mike, let's first go there. I can see why maybe you might have put it off for a while. We both are fans of Mike, but we both also agree that, and I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm speaking for you with this, that he is an interesting filmmaker in the fact that a lot of his stuff isn't really that good. He's very prolific. I mean, uh, I think you'd mention it. He's probably got close to a, a 80. He's got 80 film credits uh, since 1991. Amazing. 80 fucking films. So when you throw that much shit at the wall, some of it is sh- going to be shit, but some of it is going to stick. Yes. Um, I think a lot of his early stuff was very transgressive and was him getting a lot of uh, stuff out of his system. Um, I think in the past, probably... I don't know, two, three years, he's gotten away from a lot of that unconventional stuff. Um, when he did Sukiyaki, Western Django, uh, he did this, he did Yatterman, Zebraman. Um, and it's really, he's taken a turn, I think, for the better in terms of uh, being a little bit more reined in. I think that comes with the fact that now, he, you know, he's 49 years old now, probably going on 50. And, uh, well, actually, he isn't even 49 yet. He'll be 49 soon. I think that maybe he's just, I think he's one of those weird filmmakers who's actually kind of grown in front of the camera or behind the camera, either way you want to look at it, mm-hmm. by making films. I think his film school is pretty much, like you said, throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. Uh, I can admire that because a lot of filmmakers like him would just stay in, in crap. It'd be easy to just keep making low-budget crap movies, but he seems to be sort of transcending what he started, what he started as, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot more polish. And I, I was a big detractor of his early on when I first got back into Asian films because, like I said, I thought a lot of his stuff was shock for the sake of shock. And 
Felipe and I early on in my uh, time on the boards, uh, sort of, I think Felipe compared him to Fulci in that he had some good ideas visually, but they were strung together with paper thin uh, narrative and, and really no care or attention to characters or anything beyond uh, shocking imagery. And that's, that's, that's come a long, long way. Yeah. Unlike Fulci, though, he has gotten better at it, whereas Fulci just progressively got worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's the only difference, though. But I can see the Fulci kind of comparison. I can see that totally because I have some of the same feelings about Mike that I have about Fulci. Fulci has moments of brilliance mixed with uh, a bunch of shit, basically. Yes. And I'm, I'm not I'm not scared to say that. I mean, I know he has some really good films. Uh, we reviewed one that some people even blast, but uh, we'll review it again. But I know we both liked it. And uh, his films, Fulci's films have always been that way. They've been small snippets of great quality uh, mixed with a lot of, a lot of <laughs> wasted time. And, yes. uh, and that's how Mike started out for me too. It was like, okay, this guy has something, but he doesn't know how to, he doesn't know how to use it. And uh, I'm, I'm seeing now, especially with this film and some of his later films, I'm seeing now that he's starting to figure out, how to use his uh, his strengths very well. Well, I think one of the interesting things, Sammy, is this is an, an, an uh, example of a director who's working in the, the studio system now and is better served for it because it's keeping him a little more focused, a little more tight, and a little more reined in. This is a, a, one of the rare flip side of the coin examples of it working in the director's favor. Yes, I can totally agree with that because it seems like, especially that span he had in the, uh, I guess, in the early 2000s, late 90s, Oh, he was out of control. <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, an understatement. <laughs> I mean, the guy was out of control. I mean, Ichi the Killer's in there, and uh, a bunch of other stuff is in there. But I mean, Audition, City of Lost Souls, uh, yeah. Dead or Alive, all that stuff. All kinds of stuff in there, and uh, yeah, he was just out of control. I think Visitor Zero was. I think was that in there. Fudo, all that, all yeah. of the stuff that Visitor, he's known Visitor most Zero, for. Visitor Q or whatever it was, or is it Visitor yeah. Zero? I can't remember. It was Visitor Q, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was 2001. So yeah, he he was that was actually right before Ichi the Killer, I believe. So he he was uh yeah, all over the damn map. I mean, the guy had no control and it's like nobody was paying attention to him. He's making all these movies and nobody's paying attention to the fact of what the guy's making, you know? And yeah. uh, except Americans who were just kind of perplexed by his complicated uh visual sense that with moments of shock mixed with uh some very slow moments. I know some people hate audition. Uh I people, love it. I I love it too. Uh and I love it because it's so subtle and quiet. Uh, yeah, and it makes that last sort of hammer, back of the hammer in the back into your head yeah. near the end of the film, that much more punishing. And it was a brilliant decision, I think. And, you know, the film that really put me off of him was fucking Gozu. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you get a kiddie pool full of shit and a woman rolling around in it. I mean, I just thought to myself, enough's enough. He's a shock maven. Yeah. I'm glad that I did not stay away, though. Yes, yes. So now that we've talked about Mike a little bit, which is was actually my first note, talk about Mike. So we can talk a little bit about Crow's episode zero, which is from two thousand and seven, right? Yeah. Yes, and it's only recently got a, an English friendly DVD, which is available on Netflix yes. and Zip. Yes, definitely check it out. You guys that have not checked it out, and I'm sure there's a lot of Mike fans out there that are similar to us that have been have fallen in love with him, fallen out of love with him, fallen in love with him, fallen out of love with him, and whatnot. So. Uh, here we go. Uh, this is basically based on a manga, which is, you know, a Japanese comic, basically. Uh, I don't know anything about it, but I am now incredibly interested in it. Let me say that. 
Uh, I want to look into that, so I'm going to. Uh, I'll start with the, one of my favorite lines in the film. Right at the, toward the beginning of the film, one of the uh, teachers at the school says, it's a happy day, no fighting. <laughs> Which I love because from that moment on in the film, it's like fight, 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 fight. <laughs> so yes. I can see why he said, oh, today's a happy day, no fighting. <laughs> so, yeah, the teachers obviously have no control over the school uh, that they're in. Uh, this Again, it's almost I almost got the same vibe I got from Bronson with this film was that it's almost feels like a post apocalyptic movie, but it's not. You know what I'm yes. saying? It, yes, or or sort of this yeah, slightly futuristic, slightly alternate reality of sorts. But I mean there's no changes in clothing. There's no changes in uh cars or automobiles or, or uh, for that matter motorcycles or mopeds, whatever that thing was. <laughs> that wasn't a motorcycle. Uh there's no changes in any of that stuff, so in that way, it's not futuristic. But it feels that way. It still feels apocalyptic to me. It just feels like you know, it's society gone wrong uh, with yeah, our youth. We, we see the school is just in utter fucking shambles. There's barbed wire up. Every square inch of the school is covered in graffiti. The desks are all thrown outside of the school. I mean, it is just torn. Upside down. Reminds me of uh, the Jim Belushi classic, The Principal, which uh, I would love to cover on the show at some point. Jim Belushi and Louis Gossett Jr. kicking it. What was the one with Behringer, The Substitute? Yeah, that's The Substitute, yeah. Actually, there's a sequel to that with Treat Williams, too. Wasn't there one with Chappie? Uh, Good old Lou Gossett Jr.? Yeah, that was, that was The Principal. That was The Principal. Oh, uh, yes, he, he's yes. in that with uh, Jim Belushi. Pretty awesome. That's right. <laughs> so you're about 13 minutes in before you get a title sequence, which was a great touch. Let me say that. I didn't even notice there wasn't a title sequence until the title sequence came up. I was like, yes. I didn't even notice there was, let me say that. I didn't even notice there was a lack of title sequence until 13 minutes in when the title sequence comes up. And what a title sequence it is. Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing piece of filmmaking. I mean, this first 13, 15 minutes of this film is some of Mickey's, Mickey's, Mickey. Mickey's uh, best work. Uh, I'll, call, I'll just call him Mickey. Uh, <laughs> some of his best work I've seen in a long time. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I have went away from, I'm one of those guys that jumped on the Mike thing because I heard in reviews or in interviews with Tarantino, Roth, all these people about how Takashi Mike is, you know, changing cinema, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, once they started releasing audition over here and the ring got popular, not that he did the ring, but the ring got popular. And then they started releasing all these Japanese cinema films over here. They released a lot of Mike, right? So I went to the video store, rent as much Mike as I could. Uh, and of course, you know, that was the law of diminishing returns there because I didn't know what I was in for, uh, visually just, and in, I seriously, at one point in time, I thought the guy might be insane, uh, as opposed, <laughs> like, 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 uh, Tinto Brass was when he made Caligula. Uh, <laughs> uh, at one point, you know, you, there's some filmmakers, you see their movies and you're like, okay, this guy, this guy's off his fucking gourd. You know I mean? You, yeah. Like, I'm sure both, both of us at some point in time have thought that of David Lynch. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's like, what the hell is wrong with this dude? You know? And, uh, but this film is totally tame by Mike standards, really. I mean, the violence is in there and stuff, but I expected it to be much more insane than what it, it turned out to be. Uh, it's really funny. Both films we watched this week are incredibly violent without being incredibly violent. Is that, is that, do you understand what I'm saying there? Uh, They're not the sort of leering, ex, sort of rub our noses in the after effects of violence. Yes. They're more concerned with violence as an act mm -hmm. than violence as the, uh, the, and then the after effect of violence or the uh, ripple effect. Yes, yes, exactly. There, there are a lot of characters in this film and uh, they yes. all wear black in some capacity. So 
it is a complicated film to follow and you really kind of got to keep up with the faces and with the names and you really i mean it is not an easy film it's 126 minutes long it's a long film uh uh not i mean not long as in you know you know titanic or something like that but 126 minutes is pretty long for a genre movie and uh you really have to keep track of and it kind of it eventually kind of focuses on one or two three characters maybe but for a long time it's jumping all over the map well you you need to be introduced to all the players of the film and i think one of the great things they do with the film is early on we get by way of an explanation this sort of power structure within Suzura and High School. And I think it was a smart move uh, for them to do that because, again, it gives us a refresher in terms of uh, who's who, who are the players, who are they, and we get to sort of put a face to the name and, and, and go from there. And I think the fact that a lot of the principals have very unique, distinct looks, very unique, distinct hairstyles that we can sort of, okay, that's the guy with the pompadour, that's the guy with the David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust mullet and the surgical mask. There's you know, two, there's, there's two characters. There's two characters with surgical masks, right? Oh, there's maybe even more than that. Yeah. I think there's there's one of the younger characters too, and one of the first, uh, the ninth grade ones. I think there's a lot of them, and I don't understand that, but there's nah, a lot of different hairstyles too. Stylistic choice, maybe. But yeah, they they have all of these characters, and you really have to. This is not a film. Well, first of all, it's in Japanese, so I mean, you can watch it in English. I think that's an option on the DVD, but it's Which in, I don't think you should ever do. No, no, not not in this case, especially. Uh, this is a film that if you are going to watch it, you have to watch it. It's not something you can just kind of put on and kind of just kind of keep looking up at like while you're doing something else. It's not that kind of movie. This is a a very structured film, and you really have to pay attention to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I caught myself sometimes uh, looking down, like, you know, uh, maybe chewing on a fingernail or something, and I was like, what the fuck was just said? What what just happened? I had to rewind it. <laughs> so it took me a little longer than two hours to get through it. <laughs> So, because uh, I will say, on my second viewing, Sammy, I was a lot more. Everything was clear to me because I'd yes. seen it all. So I could see that it, I did benefit from a second viewing. Yes, I could see that totally. Not to say you're going to be lost in this maze, but you do have to pay attention, like you said. Yeah, it's just a lot of characters. That's that's just really all it comes down to, you know. And it, it, there's so many. At, at one point, there's so many introduced at such a short time frame that you have to be. You just have to be ready for it, and you just can't. I just feel like it's a film you have to pay attention to, but that's a good thing because it's a good film and, and you're going to want to pay attention to it. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, okay. So we get some scenes of, uh, sort of Japanese or Asian, uh, comedy that, uh, I know you were a little nervous about and, uh, I, I didn't, they didn't detract me as much as sometimes like Hong Kong cinema, kind of like Chinese cinema sometimes does the, you know, the butt rubbing and the head rubbing type thing. Uh, when they get hit or kicked or something, you know, where they rub their ass, like, you know, Jackie Chan, you know, like, Oh, oh that hurts. You know. I hate. Yeah, I just I hate the the broad humor, and there's some of it in this film. And thankfully, it doesn't like you. I'm glad you weren't taking too much out of it because there's a lot more to offer than that. But I just I don't like a lot of the Asian broad humor. Yeah, this one has a scene of true insanity though. Mike insanity when some human bowling pins. Oh, I didn't mind that so much. That was just sort of a yeah. You can't mind it because it's insane. Yes. First of all, they're human bowling pins. Second of all, I thought, well, there's no way he's going to be able to get that uh, huge, whatever the fuck that thing is. Looks like a wrecking ball. Yeah. There's no way he's going to be able to get that over that hump and the roofs that they're on. And, and so I didn't expect, and then when I saw the board there and the sort of Acme, uh, you know, I saw the thing of Wally Coyote and the Roadrunner there. You know what I'm saying? Where somebody jumps yeah. down on a board and springs something up in the air. I was like, okay, well, maybe they're just going to spring it over there. 
Uh, and then they do that, and I'm not giving anything away because it's not a plot point. They do that. They hit the board. They kick it up in the air, and then our badass character kicks it, roundhouse kicks it, into some bowling pins and what can only be explained as true Takashi Miike insanity. <laughs> or Japanese insanity. <laughs> yes. It, it, yeah, that's that's a more broad statement, but yes. Yeah, they. Uh, it is insane, but it, it made me laugh. I mean, it was very funny. Uh, I just didn't expect it, and it was a great little moment. Uh, what Mike does well, man, he he can uh, mix violence and and craziness and all those things all together pretty well. Uh, yeah, so that that is well done. Now, here's what I'm going to say is the main strength of the film, and the real main strength of the film is the camaraderie between characters. There's fucking yeah. There's uh some great scenes between a character known as Invincible Ken and Genji, who's one of our main characters, and uh, Invincible Ken, oh. which I call him Invincible Ken because he calls himself that at one point. His actual name is just Ken, but I love that he calls himself Invincible Ken. Uh, he there are scenes between him and 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 Genji that are just truly uh, heart rendering and and heartfelt. Very very good stuff. Again, this is a Mike I'm not used to. Uh, a deeper film uh, that's involved characters uh, talking and uh, not always doing just insane things out of nowhere, even though these two characters do do some insane things. Uh, the camaraderie between them is great. The camaraderie between other friends in the film is great. I mean, there's just really great moments of young people being friendly to each other it, with violence mixed in. But you get this camaraderie, this kind of relationship that's built between young boys that's, I, I think, think, very important. Uh, sorry to cut you off, Sam. I think you nailed this film and the spirit of this film on the head. There's a quote early on in the film that says, "Youth is a once in a lifetime gift," yes. and that quote quote rings so true throughout this film because this film, at its essence, is about brotherhood. It's about friendship. It's about camaraderie, the rock and roll youth mentality and spirit that's so alive in the film and that's so alive in being a teenage boy and what's important to you and your friends at the time. And when Mike does these sort of things, I think is when he's at his best because the character of Ken is sort of, he's a low rent Yakuza uh, gangster and he sort of becomes the mentor to Genji and amongst them and a lot of the friends and stuff, it's just, it's so alive. And like you said, it's so heartfelt and sincere that you can't help but admire it. And I got to be honest, I hope I don't sound corny, but I told you this when I watched this film, it made me nostalgic about my high school days. Not that I went to a high school anywhere near as <laughs> as as uh, <laughs> insane as that, but just the camaraderie and friendship and the zany antics of high school. It really made me. Uh, if Canadian sort of high school was like that, uh, yeah, uh, nobody would go to Canada. <laughs> no, between the cold and that, it would, it would be game over. <laughs> be using pancakes for Death Stars. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Covered in syrup, setting out for days. Be nice and hard. <laughs> that shit'll split a wig pretty good, man. <laughs> split a wig. I have not heard that in years. Nice. <laughs> split a wig. Great. Uh, <laughs> no, man, with, with the camaraderie stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's what mainly the film's about. Now, I think some people that if they watch this film, they're going to think, "Oh, this is just another violent Mike film, uh, violence for violence sake." I don't think that's what it's about. I think. That young boys, especially again, this goes back to violence being kind of inherent in our in our culture, in our lives, and everything else. And I don't know about you, but as a boy, you know, I growing up, I would you know fake fight with my friends or real fight with my friends sometimes. Play football with no pads in the you know in the yard. Mm -hmm. Violence is kind of a part of uh you know a lot of our lives, uh, regardless if we want it to be or not. Uh, and uh, I think that you know that I think the violence in here is kind of secondary to the fact that really all they are doing is building relationships. Uh, and, and 
it's interesting, uh, you know, because obviously the school doesn't have a sports program. <laughs> <laughs> no one had the foresight to say, let's channel these boys energy into a more positive light of maybe rugby or yeah you know give them something to do with this free time because all of this free time leads to kids being bored you know so idle hands are the devil's plaything, right so they you know they they resort to violence because they have all this pent-up energy and stuff but they build relationships that are going to last them a lifetime in some cases memories that were going to last them a lifetime through violence which is an interesting take on that because usually it's more sentimental usually you know you have those relationships you remember with girls in in high school or with other boys that you hung out with and you played basketball football baseball with whatever and you know you look back on those fondly or in my case i know i played some music and things like that and you look back on that stuff fondly you do but uh in this case they use violence as that piece that these people build for and there's some great scenes with uh, Ken, especially talking to one of the Yakuza guys who went to the school and this, the, how this school has kind of become a training ground for Yakuza gang members. And, and there's some great poignant stuff in there. It's very political in some ways. Uh, it's really a deeper film than I was anticipating from Mike of all people. Uh, you know, not to say that some of his films aren't deep because some of them are, but some of them are deep in the way that they're just full of shit. Uh, literally yeah. in one case, as pretentious, you said. <laughs> pretentious, transgressive pretentiousness. Yes. Or literally, like I say, full of shit in one case where somebody's actually, you know, in a pool of shit. Yeah. So, so sometimes they are literally full of shit, but yeah. yeah, I mean, and this film is much more, much more, even though it's, it's insane, it's still very well paced and very well done. Very, and there's great shots of dialogue where characters are just talking to each other. And they're very calm. There's great zooms, slow zooms in on characters when they're making great speeches. There's a great fucking speech from uh, Rindo Man at the at the back end of the film. Oh yeah, uh, that and is that is incredibly poignant. And this character is on screen literally a minute and a half, maybe two minutes total. He, he's sort of the guy in the high school. Rindo Man, as I like to say, is massive. He is massive. Towers <laughs> over everyone and. And this sort of battle for supremacy at the high school, Rindaman is a neutral observer because he's as big as a fucking Yeti. So no one deals with him, no one bothers with him, and he just sort of is a, a sort of silent uh, observer of this. Yes. Yes, and he, he is an interesting and great character. And uh, I'm not going to talk much about what he does toward the back end of the film because I don't want to give it away, but it's just truly impressive stuff. And uh, I will say, though, that uh, I'm going to bring up this scene, and this will be my last note here. Because this was almost my make or break. Uh, but that fight scene with the umbrellas and in the rain, mm. wasn't that fucking gorgeous? It was fantastic. And it was the best visual use of umbrellas I'd seen since uh, another ironically bird-titled film, Johnny Toe's Sparrow. Nice. That's more of a ballet. This is more of a, I don't know. It was just beautiful to look at. And some of the shots from different uh, vantage points of the umbrellas. Like there's that one where it's, just below the the bottom of the umbrellas or the mm-hmm. bottom of the uh, not the not the handle or the stem but the actual umbrella part yes there's a shot of you just see a, a sea of them and the rain's coming down on it um, it just looked wonderful yes very very nice and easily could have been the make or break for the movie for me uh, I went with another thing which we'll talk about when we get back to it but uh, oh man it was just gorgeous and I, I you know I, I talked about that when we did our Brotherhood of the Wolf uh, review a long time ago about how you know that fight scene in the rain it was just so great and this is this is right up there with a great fight scene in the rain one of the best ones I've ever seen mm-hmm. uh, just just fantastic just visually pretty stunning and the film is visually stunning through and through I mean visually it is a true work of art uh, very 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 solid outing from Mr Mike and I cannot fucking wait for the sequel this thing yes. ends on a cliffhanger. 
that fucking is brilliant and frustrating at the same time. <laughs> yes, because there's a part two, and we'll uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, I guess I'll mention it now. Essentially, part two, instead of the in-house fighting and jockeying for supremacy, part two sees a rival high school and Suzuran uh, duking it out, and I cannot wait for that either. That's going to be awesome. That's already that came out in April, I think, in Japanese cinemas, and it's actually getting better reviews than the first one. Nice. So uh, we, I, I would say that the gentleman will probably, the gentleman being us, would probably uh, will probably be revisiting Mr. Mike sometime soon. I know we will. I think there's another film of his on our uh, roadmaps. Maybe is there? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I thought maybe. Oh, no, I thought no, no, no. I thought I thought maybe we were going to cover Zebra Man. Maybe not. I had mentioned that I like Zebra Man. Yeah, well, maybe maybe someday in the future. But either way, I can definitely tell you we're definitely going to be covering the sequel to this because I got to see it. <laughs> we will cover. I promise. The moment we can get our hands on Crow Zero episode or part two, we will cover it. Yes. All right. So that's basically my review for uh, Crow Zero. I'm gonna kick it over to you. Talk about some more. All right. Um. The first, within about 10, 15 minutes of the film, like you said, uh, there's a speech being given by uh, the incoming grade nine students, uh, the guy that's been elected as their sort of uh, candidate. And um, we get to see a major brawl between about 200 students almost immediately. And and uh, one of the teachers says, well, it's nice to see this year's freshman have spirit. And you can just see from this moment what kind of film it's going to be. It's just going to be insane. The fights are well shot. Um just very, very impressive stuff, and it just kind of whets your appetite for what's to come. So uh, I really like that it starts off on that note, and like you'd mentioned in terms of the pacing of the film, how well it's paced. Right. Um, you know, very quickly we're introduced to, as much as this is an ensemble piece, there really is two leads in the film, and one obviously more than the other, but the two main leads in the film. Sorry, I had to cough. <laughs> uh, are Sirizawa. Yes. Um, who has a squadron of police cars on his ass. Yakuza show up at the high school looking for him. And then we get Genji, who leaves a pile of black and blue Yakuza um, at the door of the high school after they mistake him for Serizawa. So it's an interesting um, introduction to our two sort of leaders of the two main primary factions within the school. Um, and we, when we get to it, sort of it starts that anticipation building for what will be the inevitable face to face or mano a mano between the two of them. Right, right. Um, I'd mentioned hairstyles in this film, and you know it's really funny. <laughs> uh, in a couple of the Japanese films we've done, it seems like the Japanese have taken the pompadour to an art form. Yes, that, and uh, there's actually the scene where you see that one uh, Genji, the character, has like a shaved head on the sides, and he has like the lines on the side of his head. He has the lines, yes. Yeah, and I he, remember he, that. Like, he makes it cool like van- Yeah, like it was like a vanilla ice flashback. <laughs> yeah, the, the sides are shaved. It's, it's like really long bangs, and he's got it slicked right back, and then it's longer in the back and shaved on the sides with the lines. Yeah, it's almost like a faux hawk almost kind of look but with some shaved on it. Yeah, either way, the, the hairdressers on these films must get paid major money. They better. Because the dudes in Japanese cinema seem to have better hair than the females. The dudes have incredible <laughs> hair. It's uh, Alyssa would be in heaven with all the magnificent sets, heads of hair in this film. As my brother would call it, and I think my brother calls it uh, video game hair. Or or manga hair, yeah. Yes, it's it's in that <laughs> It's in that, <laughs> that world realm. because, uh, you know, you'll play like a video game and the characters have this, they have like one bang always covering an eye and 
you know, this it's sticking up in all kinds of ungodly ways, you know, and, and that's fine. That's, that's their culture and stuff. I mean, I, I can't imagine if American culture was that way with their hair. <laughs> the yeah, jo- job job interviews would fight. go very strangely. <laughs> What's that? Job interviews would go very strangely, you know. I yes. can't <laughs> showing up in a suit with the you know that kind of hairstyle. Exactly with the Ziggy Stardust <laughs> mullet and the surgical mask. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Uh, one thing I really liked in the film, the character of uh, Tokio, he's sort of an interesting character because to me, I don't know if you got this vibe, he, he's almost like the Tom Hagen uh, conciliary character to Serizawa. Yes. He, he's like the cooler head of the two. He's sort of, he's his right-hand man. He, he keeps him in check and, and does the homework and, and a lot of the mental heavy lifting in terms of them uh, jockeying to become kings of the hill. Because I think it should be noted, I don't know if we've mentioned this, that in all the history of the school, no one has ever, there's never been one unanimous king of the hill. Yes, and that's what people are trying to achieve. That's what people are trying to achieve. Genji has come to the school to do that. He just transferred there. His father, who's a high-ranking Yakuza, uh, went to the school and failed to do it. So he wants to do one better than his father. Serizawa is on the cusp of what a lot of people think uh, is him being able to do it. Um, but Tokio's interesting because he is a friend of Genji's from junior high. So you can see that he's not really torn, but he is trying to keep Genji out of this or protect him a little bit um, while still remaining loyal to Serizawa. He's a very interesting character, and there's a major plot point, which, of course, we know we're not going to give away here involving him. I almost get the sense that either, you know, is he the, you know, Consulary, is he kind of like the guy that everybody goes to for advice, or was he actually a badass at one point in time? Uh, and you know, everybody kind of respects him. I don't know what I got out of that, but uh, I did like his character quite a bit. I did too, and I, I liked. I to me, like I said, a total Tom Hagen for me because he's even a little bit classier dressed than everyone else. He's always wearing a white polo shirt, yep. like a button-up polo shirt, whereas everyone else is wearing this sort of crazy kind of Japanese youth attire. Seems to always be hanging out on that roof. <laughs> yes. Uh, interesting you mentioned visually and there's a lot of great visual touches to this film that I'll get into but there's a scene where one of these these uh, surgical masks the guy in one is in a fight and he gets punched in the face mm-hmm. and I love the, do you remember there was the blood oozing through the surgical mask yeah I remember thinking okay he got punched in the face now if it was if it was a real good film it would it would uh, you know show blood on the mask and then right after I said, thought that that's what it showed so yes and nice. it, it oozes through like it's thick yes very wet, like Ter- um, like Terence Hill in the mountains of Spain. <laughs> um, I love the fights in this film. I mean, they're just they're brutal, they're stylish, they're well shot. They're a mix of wrestling, street fighting, martial arts a little bit. Um, the thing I like most about them, and I'm impressed most about them, is something we already touched on: is that for the most part, it's fists and feet. Yeah, that's it. It's not guns. There's only one gun in the film, and it's not by any of the high schoolers. Mm-hmm. Um, a few times there's bats and chains when things escalate. For the most part, it's always hands and feet. And I think that's something that I think is – I just I really enjoyed and admired, that it wasn't this nonsense gunplay uh, movie. Also with the fight scenes is that they all seemed – even though some parts were over the top, they all seemed realistic to me. Uh, a lot of times in, when you get fight scenes in Asian cinema, you get you know one guy versus 40 people, and you know what's going to happen. That one, our hero is going to beat all 40. Uh, this case, uh, you get scenes where that doesn't happen. You get, uh, maybe you might get, he might get like the first six or seven, 
but then the reality sets in of just too many forces holding them down and straightening them out a little bit. So that happens actually quite often in the film, and I actually appreciated that. I do too, because it's strong. And, and you, like you said, this stuff is over the top, but it's not completely out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's times where uh, Genji goes to, he's trying to uh, earn the respect and, and sort of assume, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically get these these other factions to merge with his and you take it on a group of guys, and he he chews off a pretty good chunk, but inevitably he gets slowed down by just the sheer numbers, and he keeps getting up and up and up, but he gets slower and slower, and he's more broken and bruised and everything else uh, as it goes on. So you're right, I liked it. And those films, no- those scenes could have easily been very boring. Yeah. Me, me and you watch a lot of films with fight scenes in them, and... Those scenes, if you'd have told me that, you know, he's just going to keep getting up, he's just going to keep getting up, he's going to keep up, that was like, oh, God, you know, this is going to keep going on forever. But they're never boring. They're well-paced and well-shot, so that's very and impressive. The, and the fil- the fight scenes seemed fresh to me. They felt like quite something I hadn't quite seen before, and that's the thing that I find so interesting. I mean, the sound design was great on them. They, the, the punches and kicks, you felt them. When glass broke, you, you felt it, and... I can't quite put my finger on it. I mean, it wasn't this incredible display of uh, of wushu like in Ip Man. It was just this really fresh look at sort of brawling street fighting uh, with these with these boys. Yes, I agree with you. The, the, the scenes did feel fresh. Yeah, um, there's a great moment early on because Genji, like we said, has come to the school to sort of become the king of the hill, and and Ken is telling him, you know, to rule Suzuran, you need more than a good punch to consolidate it. You need leadership, heroic virtues, a diplomacy, keen perception. And it's at this moment we see Ken becomes his mentor and his friend. And it, it's clearly a void in his life that his father doesn't have time for. And um, I thought that was a great scene and a great sort of a primer uh, for what Genji needed to do and also to develop his friendship with Ken. Right, right. So I, uh, I really like that. Uh, the film's edited very well. There's a few moments that come to mind. Uh, the scene when they're playing some sort of a mahjong. I don't think obviously it's mahjong, but some sort of a mahjong or dominoes type game, and they get what appears to be like a royal flush, yeah. or the, the, the uh, equivalent is called thirteen orphans. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, the character is about to show them that he's got thirteen orphans, and when it cuts to the board, the board just comes up and all the pieces fly off yeah. because Genji has kicked it, and it was really well edited. There was that moment. And the moment where Ken simulates that he's sliding a door open, and then it, it cuts to Genji sliding the door open on his classroom. Yes, and those moments come to mind. But there's a lot. This film's very well edited. I'll agree with that. That uh, scene with the thirteen orphans uh, thing that actually kind of gave me a startle. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, and we talked about the stylization, and it almost felt like the Warriors, the freshman years, because everyone had this very distinct visual style, much like in the Warriors. Yes, yes. Well, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out for a while why the film was called Crows. And then I remember one of the characters say, you know, you, one of the police detectives says, you know, you were up there at that, that school of crows. And I remember thinking, okay, they're all wearing black. The, you, got the, you got the crow up there. They, I mean, the crow, the animal, is, and it's not pretentious or anything. You just see the No, it's the just crows. a mascot. Yeah, you just see it occasionally and stuff. But they always all wear black and stuff. So, you know, I mean, I can see where they call it a school of crows. You know what I'm saying? Not just, yeah, this, not all, just the mascot. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because they're all trying to fly higher, too. So, yeah, it's, it, it was good in that regard. Um, but speaking of fashion and style, Makise or Makise, however you say his name, 
didn't have much style when it came to dressing for the ladies because <laughs> there's a scene where he's getting ready to go on a group date and the dude looks like a South American coffee plantation owner in the 40s. Yes, and he's he's a man. It was that was some impressive sweat. Impressive sweat. The dude's. I mean, you talk about Terrence Hill. And he I mean, he boy. suffers from premature ejaculation in my, what might be the worst case of premature ejaculation in cinema history. Yeah, that's another moment I kind of groaned. I didn't really like. I thought it was unnecessary. It was. Um, it would have been enough just for him to be nervous around the girls yeah. instead of him blowing his load and doing the Elvis uh, hip shake uh, every time he talked to a girl. Yes. But there are some good scenes with him where he does uh, ruin his pants, and they they get him some pajama pants. It looks like, and uh, they're laughing. Yeah, women's about pajama him. pants yeah. at that. They're laughing and, and everything else. And again, you see that camaraderie come through that's so important for the film. Yes, the scene ended well, and that that was a good moment. Yes. Um, and again, I just the visuals are what's really impresses me. Every scene in this film is very visually interesting, from the way the characters are, their unique design, from their hair right down to their shoes. Um, to the set dressing, yes. um, the graffiti, the way everything in this film, if you look at it, like there's a wonderful scene visually when um, there is like a side-to-side tracking shot when Genji's sitting in sort of this, uh, this alleyway with his girlfriend and then there's the neon and there's puddles and there's fog and the way the neon's reflecting in the water and the fog's coming in and everything and it just... Looked like a Blade Runner almost. Yes, absolutely. And it was just wonderful to look at. And the film is a real visual treat. Look like Blade uh, Runner or look like 48 Hours, the Walter Hill neon and puddle film. <laughs> yes, yes. It was just it really, really good. Um, the scene that precedes that is one when Ken went from being this... I went from liking him but finding him obnoxious to sort of loving him. It's when he... he does something to save Genji's girlfriend. Um, you know, because before this, he'd been sort of an obnoxious, broad character for me. And now he had real heart. Right. We could see his heart. We yes. were willing to overlook the broad, obnoxious nature of his character. Yes. He's the most interesting character in the film, ultimately, at least in this film, because uh, or in this episode, whatever they want to call it. But he's the most interesting one to me because he goes through the most change in the movie. Yes. And he's the worst-dressed Yakuza in the history of cinema. Yeah, he just draws attention to himself. He's like, hey, I'm Yakuza. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Even an American can figure that out. <laughs> he wears sort of these silk track pants with dress shoes, and they just oddly dressed. Um, and it's funny. He has a funny moment, though, one of his more subtle funny moments, where he's taking on a gang of hoods, and uh, he tells Genji that he scared them off all off with his sheer intensity. Yes. <laughs> That's when he calls himself Invincible Kin. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It was just a, kind of a funny moment. And uh, anyway, um, moving along, um, there's a great quote when Genji on his way to climbing up this mountain, things kind of take a turn and it becomes difficult for him. And he's sort of falling off the rails and he's about to go and, and take on Surizawa and, and his his gang. And uh, Makise... Uh, however you say his name, says to him, you know, if you lose right now, it's you're losing for all of us. That's it. It's over. And it was a really good dramatic moment because you realize to these characters what where the stakes are and how they're constantly escalating and getting higher and higher. And that if one false move, one wrong move up this mountain, you're going to fall right back down to the bottom again. Yes. 
I mean, really there's cool. a lot of great. There's the scenes of dialogue in this film. That's why I tell people to pay attention because this film is very well written as well. I mean, a lot of narrative is told in these scenes of dialogue. Very like uh, like you know what I like about Tarantino, who seems to come up every episode we watch. We we do of the show, yeah. but. There is a lot of narrative explained in dialogue, and this is – if you was to see a trailer for this, you'd think it was a flat-out action cult movie. But it's actually a really good film in that it tells its story through characters, and I thought it was really – a lot of the scenes are very touching and very poignant, and I was really, I was really completely stunned by that. That was not what I was expecting at all. No, you don't expect the kind of heart that yes. it has. Um, there's a few moments in the film where – this film is deadly. These boys are deadly serious about what they're going to do. But there's a few moments that remind us and remind them that they're just that. They're still boys. Mm-hmm. Because there's a scene where they start to really get it worked up. And there's this sort of this uh, like juice bar kind of place where they play darts. And they're starting to get worked up. And the, 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 the guy says to them, hey, take it outside. Yes. And it's, it's funny because it just goes to show that as much as they're deadly serious about everything, that they are still boys. Yes. <laughs> and that the adults can kind of admonish them and say, hey, you, you know, stop that. And there's the one character uh, who constantly gets he gets a dart in the forehead and he gets hit with a baseball in what has to be one of the hardest ways to hit a baseball I've ever seen. And he gets a fork in the forehead. Yes, he he takes more punishment than any other character in the film. And he has a perm. It's weird. He's sort of a Japanese guy with a perm. Yeah. He, he is a hideous looking individual. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's pretty um, bad. <laughs> um. Just I got a couple more notes. We see several times in the film, and I like this, that Sarazawa isn't the bad guy. He's just not the the lead as Genji is. He's just a sort of slightly below him in terms of focal point of the film. We can see that he has honor. He there's some things that are done in the film that he disagrees with, and uh, he's not an unlikable character or despicable character. He's he's likable. He's charming. He's just not the focal point. The film could have film could have been but him as well, and it would have been fine. Well, I think what you see with Sarazawa is he is at that crossroads where his life is changing. Something's going on, which we won't give away in this film, that has kind of made him grow up a little bit. Yes. And he is going through a transition phase. He still wants to be the kid, but he's also headed toward adulthood. And you can see that he kind of battles with that a little bit, probably more than any other character in the film. Yes, and we also see that he's poor. Unlike some of these kids who are rich in the film, Mm -hmm. he's poor. He has he has a very adult or adult um, emotional thing happen to him in the film um, that yeah he's at a crossroads between climbing that mountain like a boy or dealing with things that he needs to as an adult. Yeah, I think that we all go through. The, I mean, I know I did. I think we all go through some realizations in in high school of you know that change from adolescence into you know early adulthood. I think it happens during high school for most, not mm-hmm. all. And I think you're seeing that with his character. Again, it's another deep moment that uh, and it makes you really identify with this character who ultimately he's supposed to be like the badass, but you kind of identify with him. They, they humanize him quite well. Let's just say that. Mika humanizes him very well. And, he's well-rounded. That's yes. what I'm saying. He's not the bad guy in the film. He's yes. just another one of the lead characters. Yes, exactly. And that's what's done so well. Um only got a couple more notes here. The last battle scene in this film is just fantastic. Like we talked about with the rain oh, yeah. and the umbrellas, it just has the energy of youth. 
mm-hmm. in it. And it's great that all the primary characters get to have their quote-unquote moment yes. during the fight scenes. It's like the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. This is like the Magnificent 37. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll say exactly to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone has their moment, and you're cheering and you're pumping your fist because you 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 care about these characters, and that's the thing that I love the most is a lot of these films, they leave you cold. This one, you're... And like Demai said in her voicemail a few episodes ago, to have something that you care about and you're cheering, you're going, yeah, I get him. Yeah. You know, it's just something that's missing so often from film. And, and that's because heart is missing so often from film. And Well, I'm glad to see that we get some heart because this is Mike, who's a working man's director. He could easily just been like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm getting paid. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Which I, I am absolutely convinced there's a lot of his films in his filmography, at least 50% of them. That's being nice that are just check cashers. Yeah, or, or not even maybe not even check cashers so much as garbage. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know if he, he did it to cash a check or just to he just cash a check for some garbage, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe so. I mean, however, yeah, however you want to put, it. They're just they're not they're not good. Yeah, they're not good. Uh, I have two negative notes, unfortunately, on the film. I think there was a bit of a cop out with the repercussions of a character's decision that took away from the power of the moment for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Took away from its poignancy. I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. Yes, I do. I, I was a little disappointed. I mean, I was kind of torn between being happy and being a little bit upset that it, it wasn't as poignant as it could have been. Uh, yes. I'll say no more than that because it would spoil the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the film, as great as it is and as well-paced as it is, could probably shave about 10 minutes off it um, because it is, you know, two hours and 10 minutes long. Um, yeah, that being said, it doesn't it doesn't feel you know, too long, but no. I think you could have tightened up just a, just a hair if I'm going to split here. There's some music interludes that could have been taken out. Yes, and that girl was very hot. We didn't mention her, Genji's girlfriend. No, I was thinking that. we Neither one of us mentioned her, but she was uh, gorgeous. I'm not uh, I'm not terribly attracted to Asian people, uh, Asian women, I should say, Asian people. <laughs> sorry, sound, sorry to sound prejudiced there. Uh, no, I mean, I, they're just not, I mean, just like any man, I have a certain taste. You know, I like my brunette... Uh, uh, women and that's the way i like it uh, yes you know, well, i'm not. the same way i you know i there's some i like but like anyone i have my preference just to yes. say i like certain ice cream flavors or exactly you know, yeah but this one this girl is attractive beautiful yes she is a gorgeous one to say the least and but yeah there's some scenes where she sings it, it that seems pointless to me uh it's almost yeah. like a britney spears-esque moment there's a scene with a punk rock band even though i like the song it seemed wasted. I mean, if you're going to do that stuff, do it at the end credits, uh, you know, like they did. They played, they showed yes. that band at the end credits, and that's not giving anything away with the plot because it has nothing to do with the movie. Do it yes. that way, you know, or play the music throughout the film. Uh, but, you know, I think they wasted like five, eight, maybe even ten minutes on some musical interludes that were just odd to me. But, you know. I think so, too, because I know they went at the backdrop of the club with the kids, but just, you know, kind of do like a little ten-second cut to the music as they're talking at the club. That was all that was needed. But yeah, you, you get that's a if I'm going to critique the film. Yeah, you get a full, full performance is what you get. Yeah, from a few artists. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So, but yeah, I, I'll agree with you. I, the, one, the one flaw I didn't like about the film is I felt the cops were a little bit too cardboard cutout. You got the one good cop who I liked, but I thought they could have done yes. a little bit more with the cops. But that's just... They could have... And if I'm going to be devil's advocate, the film wasn't about the cops, yes. so they didn't have to. But I mean, it's it's like we see sometimes in Eurocrime films. There's almost they're almost completely absent from the films because the focal point's not on them. But yes, if you're going to put them in, but then again, then it becomes a situation where it maybe becomes bloated because they have to flesh the characters out more. Who yeah, knows, it's right? it's it's a fine line. Yes, I mean they could have yes. put more of the yakuza people in too, and then it could have became bloated. And even I wanted some more of the yakuza stuff too because that always fascinates me. But 
Then it becomes a then it becomes a Yakuza cop movie. It doesn't become a movie about uh, you know adolescence or anything or what it yes, eventually it did dilutes become. Dilutes what it is. Yes, which is a film about adolescent camaraderie is basically what it comes down to. So it dilutes the Kool Aid too much. Yes. All right. So I guess we're ready for some make or breaks and things. Yes. All right. So my make or break is going to be the scenes between Invincible Ken and Genji. I really think these scenes are very well written and very emotionally packed, and, and they pay off incredibly well. Uh, there are really just some great poignant discussions between these two characters uh, about, you know, Ken's youth when he was in school and about Genji and how he kind of projects himself on Genji, you know. And uh, I really, really thought that stuff was poignant and well-written and well-done. And uh, it would have easily, it could have easily been the Umbrella fight scene because that was fucking visually amazing. That could have easily been it, and that's why I brought it up because it was a close second. But I'm going to go with those scenes. As you know, I'm very... I like the dialogue scenes quite a bit, and those scenes were really, really good and hypnotic, man. I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen when those two characters were interacting with each other. So I thought it was very well done. Uh, my MVT for this film, I'm going to go with Mike. This is uh, a return to form, uh, or maybe not a return to form, but this is actually one of his, out of all the films of his I've seen, this is definitely one of his best. Uh, this is a director who I think is, I think he may have in these last five years or so, five or ten years, I think he may have found who he really is. Uh, I think he might have gotten through all the shock and craziness and the pools of shit. <laughs> yeah, the angry youth stuff. Is yeah, out of his, yeah his the thing. kind of punk rock cinema that he was making. Yes. You know, and, and the anarchy, basically. You know, he's very an, anar- an anarchic uh, type of filmmaker. Yeah. Filmmaker, that's a hard word to say, by the way. <laughs> say that five times fast, bitches. <laughs> all right. Uh, my score for the film is going to be an 8.25. I think this film is it's near flawless. It's very, very good. Uh, it could have been shaved. It does have some some clunky moments and some kind of goofy comedy that probably could have been cut out as well. But uh, overall, this is definitely one of Mike's best efforts, and uh, I highly recommend people check this out. That's about all I got. All right. Um, I agree with you about the poignancy of the scenes with uh, Ken and Genji. I had to go with the fight scenes, though, because I just think that, um, like I said, there's something that just feels fresh about them, and, and watching as much many cinematic brawls and fights as we do to see something exciting like that, just it really grabbed me, and and I really liked that they stuck with fists and feet with these boys, and not, you know, knives and you know throat slittings and all this bullshit. It yeah, was we just, didn't get wire work either, which is good. <laughs> no, no, exactly. I mean, there's some stuff that's over the top, in a good way, but not too too far over the top. Yes. Um, just really, really enjoyed them. Uh, my MVT for the film, as much as I could go with Miki, I'm going to go with visuals, and that's everything from the set design to the costumes. The characters, the fight choreography, everything in this film, aesthetically speaking, was very cool and was just just a treat for the eyes. Yes, I agree uh, with that. So I'm going to go with that. My score for the film is an 8.5 out of 10, a little bit better than yours. I absolutely love this film. If this film came out this year or last year, it would have been on my top 10. I will go on record as saying it's Takeshi Miike's best film, absolutely. Nice. Uh, I've, I've seen maybe... 10 to 15, well, probably between 10 and 15 of his films. So you've barely seen any. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've barely scratched the surface. Um, <laughs> but I've seen a lot of this, this sort of quote-unquote, uh, you know, the must-sees or the essential ones or the, the real buzz ones. And to me, nothing is even close to get the combination of style and thrills and heartfelt emotion, uh, sincere emotion that, that he brings to the table with this. And I know he... In interviews and stuff, talked a lot about his youth, uh, or his his youth being a poor youth in, in Japan and stuff, and he's, he put a lot of himself into this film, and 
And I cannot recommend this film highly enough. And I'd be curious, once some of you have seen it, to let us know what you think. Yeah, I would too, because uh, I know people, there are people out there who are huge fans of Mike, and they have favorite Mike films. You know, that's a good point. I, I, you might be right. This might be, even for me, I'm thinking about all the Mikes I've watched. This might be the best film I've ever watched by Mike. So I'd have to do research before I made that statement, but I'm thinking that, I'm thinking this might be the best Mike film I've watched. I'm just kind of running stuff through my brain right now, which makes for riveting podcasting, I'm sure. But I'm thinking that uh, of all the films I've watched of his, this is definitely the one that I come away with with the biggest smile on my face. And that's the thing. I, Sammy, after I saw this for the, the the next two or three or four days, I couldn't help but think about it, think about how cool I found it, how nostalgic it made me feel, and how much I loved the film. Well, I know I'm, I know I'm going to watch it again this weekend because, like you say, I think watching it twice is good because of all the characters and stuff. And I've already made plans for myself because I'll be out of school come tomorrow for three weeks that I'm watching this again first thing before I even start the penitentiary trilogy. So wicked. <laughs> this will be getting a rewatch. Yeah, I definitely want to hear uh, our listeners. Uh, this is one of those films we're really going to push on you guys if you haven't seen it. So we want to hear some feedback on this film for sure. Yes. We typically don't ask for feedback from a certain film, but I definitely want to hear some feedback about Crows Episode Zero. So if you guys out there are interested in some Mickey and some Asian cinema, uh, give us a call or some emails. We'd, we'd appreciate it. And don't let it be once bitten, twice shy with Mickey. Where I'm telling you, this is a lot more conventional and not in a bad way yes. than his normal films. Yes. Give it a try. Give it a shot. All right. So that is our review of Crows Episode Zero. We're going to take a break, come back with some feedback. We'll be back after this. PopSyndicate.com. Reviews of all the hottest movies, music, authors, comics, books, and more. Home of the Pop Syndicate message boards and the best media-related podcasts and internet radio in the world. Check it all out at www.popsyndicate.com. I'm the motherfucking rhinoceros. My beasts are fat and the birds are on my back and I'm horny. I'm horny. If you choose to proceed, you will indeed concede. Kids, I hit you with my flow, the wild rhino stampede. I'm not just wild, I'm trained, domesticated. I was raised by a rapper and rider that dated and subsequently procreated. That's how it goes. Here's the hip hop hippopotamus, the hip hop hippo. They call me the hip hop hippopotamus. My lyrics are bottomless. Sometimes our rhymes are polite, and I think of a denim as right. That was very delicious. Good night. Sometimes they're obscene, like a pornographic dream. NC 17 with ladies in a stream of margarine. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, some margarine. They call me the hip hop hippopotamus. Flows that glow like phosphorus. Popping off the and top now, of the esophagus. Listener feedback. All right, here we are, ready to go with Who some feedback. Was that? <laughs> that, was, that was the Flight of the Concords. I thought it was because after a long time of putting off getting into the show, I finally watched the first episode last week, and uh, it certainly sounded like something they would do based on what I'd seen. And it's funny, my wife said, "I don't know if I think this is hilarious or really stupid." And of course, I think it's hilarious. It's 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 it plays that fine line of hilarious and and stupidity great, and that's what I, that's why I like the show. So yeah, yeah be, the- after you watch that first season, let me know what you think. I certainly will. I know there was sort of a Prince riff on the first episode when uh, they're at a party and and they're talking to a girl or something. It's pretty good stuff. <laughs> All right, so we have one email and uh, several voicemails, so I'll go ahead and kick it over to you, and we'll get going on some email. All right, the title for this one is Rock and Rolla, and it is from our good friend Sean from HorrorCommentary.com. Yes. 
it says, hey, men in black and red leather pants. <laughs> don't have to read on air or nothing, but we're going to, dear, so don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, just a quick note to say that. Sorry, I had to sniffle. Uh, just a quick <laughs> note to say that I watched this, that being rock and roll, of course, and it was a pretty solid Guy Ritchie film. I'd totally given up on him after Revolver and Swept Away. There is a fucking OTC Revenge film. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But gave him another shot after you recommend. Looks like the pointed boobed succubus known as Smelly Volva, a.k.a. Madonna, has been vanquished and was finally forced to unlock Mr. Ritchie's trapped soul from beneath the inner caverns of her vagina dungeon. Jesus. Uh, not locked stock and two smoking barrels or snatch, but solid stuff. Tony Kebble is one to watch with this and Dead Man's Shoes. Bruckheimer put him in the new Jake Gyllenhaal Tough Tits Opus, Prince of Persia. You're hoping that won't suck. XOXO, Sean. Sean, I'm going to tell you right now, I just think Prince of Persia is going to suck. <laughs> I don't see how it cannot suck. Uh, it just it looks like it's going to suck. But here, here's, here's where I have hope. It's going to suck in that way that... Films suck and we end up loving them. I'm gonna hope. I'm gonna hope that it's like so bad it's good. That's what I'm gonna hope for. That's all I can hope for at this point. Because I've seen photos of Jake Gyllenhaal offset and he just it just this the photos of him look terrible. <laughs> I like Jake Gyllenhaal, but you can't butch him up too much because it starts to look comedic. He doesn't have the right voice for a butch role. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. And this uh, Tony Kebbell was very good in Dead Man's Shoes and Rock and Roller, which are two very different roles. Um, yes. I'm glad that, uh, well, as most people feel that way about Madonna, because I certainly do. I, I like a lot of her early music, to be completely honest. But she, to me, is sort of like the modern-day Babs or Barbara Streisand. Just enough to pardon my language, but I feel very strongly about her. Um, she's a self-important cunt, in my opinion. And, uh, again, I apologize to the ladies out there who don't <laughs> like that word, but I feel very strongly about her and... I think it's too bad that, she, you know, I read some of the terms and conditions of their marriage and it's just preposterous stuff. <laughs> so thankfully, Mr. Ritchie's back. We'll see if he can continue his run with uh, Sherlock Holmes this summer. Yeah, yeah that's going to be a real test for him because uh, the way he's doing Sherlock Holmes is interesting to me. I'm regardless of what reviews say and everything else, I'm going to check it out, obviously. Uh, but Absolutely. I am I am a little nervous about it. I mean, let's be honest, but. Yeah, he, he brought up that, you know, he likes Lock, Stock, and Snatch more. I remember that was the, the debate between me and you, was which one is the best film, Lock, Stock, uh, Snatch, or now Rock and Rolla? Because that's really kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of like a trilogy now. Yes, it is. It's almost like the Milieu trilogy, in a sense, I guess, in yes. that it's about low-level crime or crime without really any recurring characters. And I don't, I don't know, I don't, I've said... When I watched Rock and Roll, I said that I think I like Rock and Roll the most, but again, it, it might be because it was the last one I watched. I'd have yeah, to watch I them agree. all three together and see if, uh, if uh, you know, what I would come out with. No, I, I think they're all right within that same ballpark. I think any of them, you could make a case for any of them. So yes. Rock and Roll, I certainly don't think, I think it can hold its own against those two. Absolutely, though. Yes. All right, so we have some voicemail. And thank you, Sean, by the way. Uh, you are the, uh, the glued penis to coffee table god. <laughs> and hopefully the only god of that sort. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, so we get some voicemail here, including some uh, one at least from somebody we haven't heard from in quite a while. So I'll play it here. A second here, gentlemen. Oh, how are you, douches, doing? <laughs> it's Jay calling. Um, haven't I? Don't think I've called in a couple weeks. Um, mainly because I don't Weeks. think I've had anything to say on the movies, which uh, I. 
did have a lot to say on the Kill Bill, was it Kill Bill and Badlands episode? But I even took notes. But I uh, <laughs> no, I forgot to call. And I don't know where my notes are. But Kill Bill, really? The favorite movie of all time, Willie? It was Willie, right? Nah. Okay, I mean, you know, it's a good movie. I like it. And Badlands, oh, great movie. I love Terrence Malick's. And uh, you can tell the hat that I, I like Tree of Life, or not Tree of Life, that's the new Terrence Malick. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that that Pocahontas movie, I like <laughs> that one too. I just like Terrence Malick's. He makes <laughs> visual poems, if you will. Um, yeah, I didn't really have anything to say on this new episode either. I mean, you know, all the movies sounded great. I got to I got to look into them. I have not seen them. Well, I haven't seen a lot of uh the Italian stuff, a lot except for I've seen a lot of the horror, but I haven't seen a lot of anything else. Yeah. So, I thought I'd uh, broach another subject. And I don't know if I ever brought this up before or not, but uh you guys fans of Anthony Hickox? He did a couple movies you might have heard of, Waxwork, Waxwork 2, Lost in Time, <laughs> and Sundown, and Sundown has a, some weird little subtitle, but it has Bruce Campbell as uh, Van Helsing's like great, great, great nephew or something. I love, I loved Anthony Hickox. He he stopped working in the genre. Well, he stopped working in the horror genre and started making crappy sex crime movies with C. Thomas Howell uh -oh. that went straight to DVD. But uh, I'm a big fan of Waxwork. Big fan of Waxwork too. I love movie sequels that take place the second the other movie ends. So, of course, I oh, love so Halloween 2. Um, <laughs> but they're just fun, fun, fun movies. And Sundown's, Sundown's a blast. Um, I'm sure you guys have probably seen it, and I've probably said um 5,000 times, and I'm trying to get over since I'm apparently doing a podcast, which I'm not going to pimp out. So <laughs> We'll pimp it for you. <laughs> I just wanted to call. It's been so long. Oh, we missed All you. right, guys. You're a bunch of douches. But I love you anyways. Bye. Well, the way I look the way I look at the term of calling people douches and saying you love you is look, the douche the douchebag itself is a friend to all men. Let's just think about that for a minute, okay? Or a douche. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you are a fan of going down to the lovely valley. Of Florida. Yeah. <laughs> that just sounds so fucking misogynistic. <laughs> My apologies. Quite the contrary, I think. <laughs> and the apologies for Will saying cunt earlier. This show is off to a fucking great start. Off diving and cunt talk. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, you know, he said something about uh, Hickox. Uh, you've commented before on Waxwork. You want to comment again I, on it? I would love to. And, you know, the funny thing about this, Sammy, is I can't remember if it was on air or just in one of our many conversations, but... Um, Waxworks, I always say, is one of those films as a child I had held near and dear to my heart. I thought it was a fantastic film. Um, I watched it a few years ago, and it didn't really hold up too well. Yeah. Um, it's very clunky in spots. I think it's a wonderful premise, and this is one that I think, if done in the right hands, not by some music video director, um, could be a great great film um basically for those of you who haven't seen it it's the premises uh, this man has a waxwork museum uh, all the exhibits basically you can go into them and it's like a, a werewolf um, a mummy etc etc and the, these kids or teenagers fall into them and if they die they become uh, part of the the waxwork 
Um, the problem with the film and the acting is that when a Hungarian midget who plays the butler is, is out acting most of your cast, which includes Zach Galligan, there's some problems. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> Excuse me. The way I feel about Hickox is uh, I think he's actually a really good director. Uh, he made Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, which wasn't good, and that's, and that's really where he started to fall apart. Warlock was yeah. a turd. Yeah, well, is that the, is that the, the Warlock, or is that the no. sequel? No, they shouldn't have made a sequel, and that was his problem. <laughs> yeah, he became like the sequel guy. Uh, I like Waxwork for what they are. I'll agree with you. They don't hold up well, but uh, I have fun with them. Uh, uh, they're, they're, you know, childhood fun. I mean, that's that's the best way to put it. Uh, Sundown, The Vampire and Retreat, I do like that film. It is a little odd. I mean, it's got David Carradine in it and uh, playing a vampire. So, uh, just to be poignant there, Mr. Carradine passed away. So, And we're not going to go into the details of Mr. Carradine's passing away because I've been reading up on that stuff and it just gets more and more fucking strange. More bizarre by the moment, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's something, you know, we, we did mention in the intro, obviously, uh, just yes. to say rest in peace. But yeah, I don't want to talk about the ninjas or anything else they're mentioning now. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the fact that he did see Thomas Howe straight to video uh, erotic thrillers doesn't bother me any. Those might be awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it looks like he did at least one Dolph Lundgren movie. So, hey. Just not a bad thing. <laughs> not a bad thing. Whenever you do some Lundgren. So, yeah. uh, or at least that's what. That, uh, ooh, that's what she said? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who we're talking about here. And I, I love that in Germany, Prince Valiant is called Prince Eisenhers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. All right. So, but thanks for calling, Jay. And yes, you do. He does have a podcast. He's working on with one of the other fellow listeners, uh, Demise. Uh, I believe it's called First Time Caller. Mm-hmm. And I believe they review a podcast. I haven't heard an episode yet as we record this one's not out yet, but I am looking forward to that very much. I want to hear. I can't wait to hear that show. And uh, they, they've also sent out an open invitation to other podcasters to join them sometimes. So I'm looking forward to maybe one day being on the show. As am I. They've, they've been part of the family, those two, for quite some time now. And uh, I'm very excited for them. But I'm glad to hear Jade called us because I'd heard him call our good friends over at OTC. And I thought, what the, fu- what the fuck, man? This guy hasn't called us in ages. Started to get a little jealous, you fucking douche. Yeah, but we love you. <laughs> yes, we do. All right, another voicemail. Here we go. This one's, uh, I think this might be a couple voicemails mixed together. This one's uh, a little bit long. So if uh, you guys think the voicemails are kind of long, you guys send them in. They're not. I just mixed some of your voicemails together. Uh, I believe Eski and Matt Suzaka I did that with. All right, so hang on. Here we go. Hey, guys. Let's make it Eskimo. There we go. Uh, Just a real quick one. Uh, Loved your coverage of Three Iron. Uh, If anything else, I'm really impressed that y'all took away a lot more from it than I did, uh, but I think I just kind of watched it and took it for just the story that was told on the surface. Uh, didn't really bother with uh, a terrible amount of the deeper meanings, I guess, uh, which is why I was calling. Uh, y'all had said that you didn't think people who didn't like art house films would like it. And see, here's the thing. For the most part, I don't like art house films. I tend to find them fairly pretentious and uh, just, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm more of, I'm more fan of uh, storytellers. And I don't mean, oh, well, you know, the scissors represent his mother. That's why he ate the cheese because the dog is his father or some crazy <laughs> shit like that. Uh, this, you know, uh, symbolism 
to me gets to a point where it's like, it's not under symbolism, you were just high. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, there we go, nice. I like a movie that can be enjoyed at face value. And my uh, reason for calling is very simply, Three Iron is very easy to enjoy, taken straight up at face value without bothering to try to read any depth into it. I don't think you have to be someone who likes to think deeply about uh, all the symbolism in a movie. Uh, not that I don't enjoy some good symbolism in a movie or anything. I'm not a you know Michael Bay fan or some idiot shit like that. But I'm just saying Three Iron, the face value story for me was so compelling that I didn't feel a need to anything into it. And uh, I would recommend that anyone who has not seen it, even if you do not like foreign films, because it's almost a silent movie, yeah, I think is. everyone should watch it. Uh, it's an extremely powerful film, and uh, every shot looks like a photograph. Uh, me and Barb were talking about that one time. Hmm. And it's one of the few movies I've seen where you can, you could go along watching this movie on your computer and almost every shot in the movie, if taken as a screen grab, would make an excellent wallpaper or desktop or whatever. It's just, he's, the director or the photographer on that film is amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that's it. That's what I wanted to say. Uh, everybody should watch Three Iron because it's awesome. And I'm out. NakedEskimo.blogspot.com He called back. Yeah, this is Naked Eskimo again. Uh, I tried to leave one for this last episode about Three Iron, and it didn't make it, so I'm going to keep this one short because I'm going to have two voicemails on one episode. Anyway, <laughs> for a future Trilla GGTMC episode, how about Show Kabuki's Ninja Trilogy? Uh, <laughs> while it still is a trilogy, anyway. Uh, you got Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and the awesomely, awesomely terrible Ninja 3 The Domination. I would really, really love to hear uh, hear you guys talk about that. (laughs) Definitely. So, uh, anyway, I was just throwing that out there. Later. All right, so that was uh, the lovely Naked Eskimo. Did I just say lovely Naked Eskimo? Lovely Naked Eskimo. (laughs) As if there isn't any such thing as a lovely Naked Eskimo. (laughs) Uh, he brings up a good point about storytellers versus art house. I can see that argument. I mean, uh, I think that uh, to bring up the name again, Quentin Tarantino, he, he he treads that fine line between both the storyteller and the art house uh, filmmaker. So uh, it is a fine line, and I can see where you know some people like that. But I, I've never heard of this Michael Bay guy. Who is this guy? Michael Bay. Whoever, whatever. IMDb that guy or Wikipedia. I don't. European I don't know. art house. Uh, yeah, I think so. Favorite, perhaps. Yeah, maybe softcore porn. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, he does bring up a good point in that I think there's artistic filmmaking and there's pretentious filmmaking. And Kim Ki Duck's films can be looked at on many levels, which, as he said, he enjoyed it on the level he looked at it, and we enjoyed it the level we looked at looked at it. Um, so I think that's a very good point. Uh, also, in terms of the Ninja trilogy, I would love to do those films because um, I love them. You and I both love the Kasuki and. We haven't had enough ninja love on the show. This is true. Uh, I wouldn't mind doing them either. Uh, I think we'll go ahead and put that on the 
on the roadmap at some point, and uh, it won't probably won't be real soon, uh, Esky. But uh, we kind of forgot that it was a trilogy. To be honest with you, I kind of always remember the first two, and I always remember I always try to forget the abomination that was part three. But <laughs> the, the third one's great, man. The chick's got the the red ninja outfit with the sword on the cover, and in fact. Good friend of the show, Rupert Pupkin, is uh, sending me a copy of that film, so I'm really, really excited. Yes, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong; it's 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 a good film for what it is. It's just uh, I remember even watching it as a youngin and thinking, <laughs> "Wow, this is this is messed up." <laughs> yes, <laughs> and let me just say this for the record: that Red Ninja suits are not very stealth-like. No, they're a little bit <laughs> unless more you're stealthy unless you're fi- yeah unless you're fighting in a lava pit. A lava pit or um, uh, in sort of the wine region of France or... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yes. or, or Red Rock West. The, uh, the <laughs> There we go. Or Prince Edward Island amongst the red sand. <laughs> yes. All right. There we go. Another voicemail. Hi, guys. It's Uwe from Munich. Um, just uh, want to congratulate you to your great review of the Million Trilogy. It was a very funny podcast. And uh, I had uh, especially I had a lot of fun because uh, hearing you talking about uh, Mario Adolf, um, who we see in Germany as a German actor, because we don't have many of his kind in Germany. And his mother is from Germany, actually. His father is from Calabria, of course, from Italy. Uh, but he gives outstanding performances until today. So um, I really love him um, very much. Um, his uh, his style of acting, um, over the top style sometimes. Um, I really love him very much. Uh, appearing movies like, uh, for uh, for example, the Black Trommel who won an Oscar as a German movie some years ago by Volker Schlündorf, and um, many many other movies, and uh, still working till today. So uh, he's really a great guy. And it was really great hearing you guys talking about him. So, um, one other thing, I heard about a new documentary coming out. It's uh, directed by Mike Malloy, and it's called Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that ruled the 70s. Uh-huh. And uh, I've seen the trailer online. You can you can find it online if you enter Eurocrime, maybe, or Mike Malloy. And um, Malloy has put uh, together some... Interviews with actors, with Henry Silva, for example, with Fred Williamson, with John Saxon, Franco Nero, Enzo Castellari is in there, and Joe D'Alessandro, and many other guys. So the trailer looks really great, and uh, I hope that this documentary, which shall be released in late 2009, if the website that I found it on is correct, um, is really going to give some great insights on the whole Eurocrime genre. So that's just uh, what I wanted to, uh, yeah, to tell you. Uh, maybe you can look it up. And uh, thanks again for the great podcast. Uh, have a nice week, and talk to you again. Bye bye from Munich. All right, the great Uwe from uh, Munich. There, he brings up the Eurocrime documentary, which is funny that he brings that up because uh, you posted a trailer for that over on our board, popsyndicate.com. So. Yeah, I've been following this one since uh, early stages. Um, I'd heard about it on another message board. Um, and I'm hoping, and I'd mentioned this to you, Sam, and I mentioned it in the thread, that uh, when you come down for TIFF this year, that we'll get to see it and hold hands. Uh, yes, and uh, smile with glee at, at a lot of our Italian 
and Italian cinema uh, heroes talking about the good old days on the big screen. And yes. hopefully, can you imagine if Silva was there or Nero was there for the Q&A and we got a picture with him? Oh, that'd be great. Fucking heaven. I can smell the musky scent right now. <laughs> of a bunch of, a bunch of men standing around taking photos together. <laughs> Sweaty fanboys. <laughs> Wicked. Sitting around going, hey, it's Franco Nero. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy with any of them showing up. Joe D'Alessandro, I've always wanted to meet that guy. That guy's got a storied history in film. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, we've seen plenty of him. If you go through his catalog, <laughs> you'll see plenty of D'Alessandro. Certainly. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, and I didn't mean that to sound like I was attracted, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, you know, I think Anto- Antonio Sabato Sr. is in that documentary as well. So Who I'm a fan of. And he was hardly recognizable without his elegant mane and his uh, mustache. Yes, yes. Doesn't His son has carried on the, uh, the uh, bronze god uh, qualities. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Antonio Sabato. That's just a great name. It is. Okay, uh, I think it's about all he really brought up. Oh, he brought up about Adorf and stuff. Yeah, we, I think we, we didn't have really talked on the fact that he was, you know, half German, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in watching more films from his catalog. The guy has a ton of work, and uh, it's interesting that he said that there's a film that he was in the likes quite a bit. It's a musical. I'm wondering, does Adorf sing in that? Because if he does, I want to check that out. I, I think he might be able to pull it off somehow. I just have a hunch that he could pull off the singing. Yes, he seems like a very uh, uh, he seems Operatic. like a boy. Yeah, he's like a big boisterous kind of uh, you know. I could see him doing like a documentary or like a bi- biopic of uh, Pavarotti, maybe. Uh, you took. I was about to mention Pavarotti when you said that. Nice. All right. Next voicemail. Hey guys, it's uh, Rupert Colin. Um, <clears throat> just listening to um, the, uh, the new show, and just wanted to thank you guys for not making fun of me for saying many times <laughs> uh, when I was talking about the candy. Tangerine Man show. Uh, I I kept saying Candy Tangerine Dream Man show, and I guess that's because I have Tangerine Dream on the brain. Huge fan of Tangerine Dream. Um, Anyway, that sounded really stupid when I said it, I thought so. Um, Also, this is just a total random weird thought, but lately I've been having this problem, and I thought you guys would find it amusing. Um, I Somehow I heard the stick song, Mr. Roboto, and it got in my head, but not the normal lyrics. Instead of the normal lyrics, um, it was, uh, like, I, I, would sing the, <laughs> I would sing the normal part, but, it, but instead of the, the Domo Origato part, I would sing uh, Ruggiero Diodato, Mr. Roboto. <laughs> and I, just, I don't know. I was going to sing it, actually, but I decided... <laughs> better of that. You idea. should have signed Anyway, uh, really random, <laughs> stupid message, but uh, I just thought you guys would find that amusing that I'm wandering around with that in my head, and it's all your fault, which is okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, great show, guys. Thanks again. Bye. It's like, Diodato. Ruggiero Diodato, Mr. Roboto. Ruggiero, Ruggiero. <laughs> It'd have been awesome if uh, Diodato would have made like an Android film, like of some sort. You know, because there was that there was a Terminator Android craze. Gold. <laughs> he might have Gold. made one. I have to look in his catalog. He's <laughs> come to save the day. Secret, secret. He's got a secret. 
one of the oddest. You know, we talk sometimes about how some films ever get made. How did that song ever get released and become popular? <laughs> oh fuck! It's just so it's so bad. It's good. It's it's, it's it's the musical equivalent of that. Yes, it is exactly that. And every time I hear that song, now I'm gonna I'm going to substitute Domo Arigato for Ruggiero Diodato. <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> that's good stuff and I, I don't worry about uh, the Tangerine Dream thing because I've listened back to shows and thought oh fuck I said uh, like the whole thing with um, with Lauren Hutton and, and all that I mean it just oh, yeah. it happens you know sometimes our brains are on different things And well we well, I think all of us genre fans have so much swimming around in our heads that we end up making hybrids of things at some point in time and that's exactly yeah, pop, what he did he did Tangerine Dream and uh, Candy Tangerine Man mixed them together it's just that uh, it's what I like to call the geek hybrid, man. I mean, I do it all the time, so don't feel bad at all. Now, if you had have said the strawberry, strawberry alarm clock, man, or something like that, yes, then I might have been like, "Whoa, yes, out. strawberry alarm clock." Wow, that's a that's a that's a weird reference. I didn't expect to hear about them today. Incense and pepper, <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right, uh, one last voicemail from our great friend Matsuzaka. This is. Actually, three different voicemails mixed together. Matt had a lot to say, so uh, this is a long one, but uh, Matt will like hearing that his name was mentioned in the words long one. So, <laughs> here we go. Yeah, my cell phone sucks, so I'll call you on my house phone. Okay, bye. That was the first one. <laughs> Yo, it's Matt Suzaka. Just wanted to call and say thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it coming from two gentlemen such as yourselves. I hold your opinions in very high regard, even though... Samurai's got Greece in his top ten, but eh, whatever. Actually, I, you know, I always hate on Greece quite a bit, and it was on the other day, and I kind of started yeah. like my girlfriend was watching it, and uh, I was kind of peeking over from the computer, and I was uh-huh. kind of like finding parts entertaining. And then a song would come on, and I'd remember like being at bars with fucking drunk, dumb, drunk girls going, "You're the one that I want, you're the one that I want," like all of them at the same fucking time, and I would get so fucking irritated. So then I'd kind of remember why I don't like Greece. It's because of drunk chicks at bars. Or even a drunk guy trying to maybe get laid by singing along with Grease songs at a bar. That guy never got laid, by the way. Um, didn't. Anyways, that's a big-time rant. I wouldn't agree. Uh, thank you for I, the I time, I really appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> The Glove, which is a pretty entertaining movie, was actually that was the first one I had written about when uh, the wonderful Dylan and the wonderful Christine from the wonderful Paris Cinema asked me to write uh, for their blog. I was, uh, I got to write about The Glove. It was a fairly entertaining movie. And I think you guys would both appreciate it. And if you're if you're looking to check it out, I know you can get it on Amazon. It's uh, on the driving double feature from Dark Sky Films. It's paired up with Search and Destroy, which is a movie I don't know anything about. But on the cover for the driving double feature, it has a big picture of a glove, which is from the glove. And the other one is a picture with some shirtless guy with like bullets going down his chest. Nice. And uh, some sort of a machine gun type of uh, weapon. And, well, shirtless men with machine guns and bullets across their chest is always a good sign. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think you can get that double feature thing like used for like seven or eight bucks, which isn't a bad price. Um, so definitely huh. check it out if you have the means. Uh, also, I'm looking forward to – I'm actually about to listen to the Three Iron review um, or that whole episode period. I can't remember what the other movie is off the top of my head right now. But uh, I'm looking forward to listen to that because I remember back on the threads a while, a while ago um, – there was some conversation between Barbarella Cult, a.k.a. Fuck Twilight, and uh, it must have been Willie about <laughs> Kim Key Duck movies, and I was like, hmm, I'm going to have to check out some of this shit because you guys were kind of speaking highly of them. And uh, I watched Bad Guy, I think it's called. I watched that on InstaWatch a while back, and uh, it was a good movie. Um, it was it was 
I didn't really know what to expect going into it, and it kind of got under my skin. It's kind of a kind of a mean spirited movie. Yes, but not like mean spirited like chaos. There's no anal oh, yeah, oh. rapes with knives. Nice <laughs> or nipple pepperoni slicings. Yes, which is unfortunate because yeah. that should just be in every movie, kids movies included too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was pretty good, and I'm looking forward to watching Three Iron, which I've actually I'm a prick, and I've had SSL Camp, which wasn't very good. Um, oh, who can shit. kill a child and three iron for about almost two months now. So yeah, anyone that's like looking to watch those movies and they're like, what the fuck, dude, I can't because it's on a long wait. It's my fault. I'm sorry. You can say I'm a prick and you'll be right. <laughs> I but, need yeah, that who can I'm kill a child. Disc. You guys review that film. <laughs> and then, uh, I'll watch the movie since you guys don't spoil ever, hardly ever. And then I can, uh, listen to the podcast again. Cause, uh, I like to do that. Sometimes it's fun. So yeah, that's all I got. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it, and uh, keep up the good work. And you guys rock. He calls back. Peace out. I think after you listen to. to the podcast, <laughs> bitches. My apologies since I already called in a fucking way long <laughs> voicemail. But uh, <laughs> listen to the barbarian review that Emily had uh, requested. Um, I was realizing that oh my god, it said the movie was fucking David, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and I got very excited. <laughs> and uh, I've seen the barbarians, I think, when I was little, but I can't really remember that well. Um, but I know I've seen Double Trouble, and I've seen it numerous times. Um, <laughs> it plays on cable once in a while, and the movie is fucking fantastically awful. You guys would love it. <laughs> Definitely love it. Um, I also want to add that they were both in a cut scene of Natural Born Killers, yeah. where Mickey and Mallory Knox, I think they break into a house, and I think they start cutting their legs off. And as they're cutting their legs off, they realize, like, Mallory Knox is like, oh, my God, I know who you are. You're the Barbarian Brothers. They're like, we love your movies. They start wigging out like, holy shit, that's so cool. And they let them live because they fucking love the Barbarian Brother movies. And uh, it's just so funny. They show the Barbarian Brothers, Peter and David fucking get inter- interviewed um, for some show, like, what, live with Wayne Gale. And uh, they're just talking about how they thought Mickey and Mallory were cool or some shit. I don't know. It's a great extra. If you have the DVD, definitely check it out. And, uh, or you can probably find it on YouTube, I'm sure. But that's all I have. Sorry. Later. All right, the one and only Matt Suzaka. Uh Yeah, get that who can kill a child end in, buddy. Uh, we're looking to cover that at some point. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid that uh, we might be the only show out there that covers Paul Brother movies, and we might end up covering another one. <laughs> I'm sure at some point we will cover this film together. It just looks too good not to. Yes. And by too good, we mean, yeah, you know what we mean. <laughs> Certainly. You know we're fans of over here. Uh, he had a lot to talk about, and I don't know uh, what else to say about the voicemail. I think it kind of speaks for itself. I do agree that nipple pepperoni slicing should be in as many films as possible. Uh, that just adds hey. adds a quality to a film that you just can't really ask for. A certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> yes. yes. And anal, anal knife rape is also... Anal knife rape is one of those things that I think just the the... the just saying it gives you such a, a vivid description that evokes it just my I, I puckered a little bit. I quivered when I Ooh, heard that. Yes. Awful. The so famous the famous thing. line and uh the people who had to watch who did watch Chaos to go along with that first bet with OTC, the famous line <laughs> in the film is uh I think he says uh, I'm gonna make two holes into one. Oh. So uh, there you go. <laughs> It's like two become one, the spice girls. There's the there's the connection. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> two become one. And that's just because chaos, I guess, is well hung, and he needed a bigger hole. I guess. So. Oh, oh man, this 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 feedback section has just been horrendous. To- Gutter. <laughs> we have really been swimming in the muck today. We're we're bringing the trash to the class. Yes, <laughs> exactly. 
All right. So, yeah, Matt, we love you. And, uh, yes, you are. I, I have to agree, Matt. You're one of the better bloggers out there. You're great, man. And uh, the Paracinema blog is a great place to go. There's some really great blogging going on over there, along with our other friends that got blogs and stuff. But uh, uh, we, we check them all out. And, uh, Matt, uh, being a listener who's been around quite a while and who we've known for a while, uh, I, you know, I didn't know he, he was had such a talent with the words. So uh, he's really, really exceptional at it. And I just he, want to say that. He's very gifted. Uh, he writes long reviews, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. Very meaty, very comedic, yet in-depth reviews. Again, let me let me cut you again. He's going to like that you use long and meaty in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I should have. Uh, <laughs> this is true. But uh, we got to remember to mention, Matt, when we talk. It just fuck, We always have so many people to mention. So, Matt, I'm going to try to remember if I don't or we don't. Please don't take it to heart because our intent is to mention you as much as possible. And you need to fucking email me or get a hold of me, man, because I've been sitting on something for you for months now. So, and it's, and it's not long and meaty. It's not long and meaty. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Yes. You're sitting on that. We'd have to like, Whoa, hang on now. <laughs> <laughs> this has become just, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you know, some of diabolic hasn't been out for a while, so I guess it's up to us to talk about this stuff. <laughs> to the dong torch has to be, <laughs> Lit from time to time. We've passed the dong torch. Mark Singer has passed the dong torch to us. <laughs> he of Beastmaster fame. Yes. And, and tits fame. oddly enough, he's in one of the, uh, I'll bring it up now. I don't know why this is so fucking random, but I believe he's in an asylum movie called Dragon Age or something. It's like a, it's like a sword and sandal movie. Oh, we have to <laughs> fucking get that. I think we should just do an asylum show. We should. <laughs> Cause there's some, some of those films that just look so awful. They have to be watched. I, I just I told you I just picked up what is it Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus with yes. with the vaunted thespian duo of Debbie Gibson and, and Lorenzo Lamas the Snake Eater himself so we we have to do an asylum show guys let us know do you want us to do an asylum show oh. call in or email us and let us know oh I'm sure we'll get uh, plenty of replies for that. I hope so. All right, so that is it for feedback and uh, for our episode this week. Uh, we're going to kind of go over what we're going to cover next week. I'm going to go ahead and say that now because uh, we're covering quite a bit, but it's simple to say. We are going to cover the Penitentiary Trilogy. It'll be another Trilogy GTMC episode. We're doing two this month. Uh, That's just the way the schedule worked out. And the reason why we're doing another one is uh, we're going to have Miles from Show Show, one of our dear friends and uh, great compatriots in the podcast world. He's going to join us next week for a, uh, well, basically a Trilogy GTMC show, uh, the Penitentiary Trilogy, one of the... Great overlooked trilogies in cinema history. <laughs> yes. And I'm laughing, but I really mean that. I really do love these films. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about those with uh, you guys. And uh, I know Miles, I know he's looking forward to it. He actually thought we were doing it tonight. So as I record this, so Miles, uh, yeah, this, that's next week. So um, I guess uh, we can go over everything we need to cover here. Uh, uh, of course, you know what we're covering next week. Again, uh, join up our forums, popsyndicate.com slash forums. You can go over there. That's where we uh, posted a link to the Eurocrime uh, trailer, so you can go over there and check that out. Uh, definitely join up on the boards. A lot of good stuff going on there all the time. Uh, we got – oh, man, I'm drawing a blank on everybody we got to thank. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we say this? Check out all of our friends at the Pop Syndicate family, including our sister shows. That yes. makes it easy. Um Check out. I'm, why don't we just name the shows? People can find them on their own. Mondo Movie, Chinstroker versus Punter, Destroy the Brain, The Hollywood Saloon. Um, who else? There's so much. 
There's so much. Uh, <laughs> blogs. Uh, Emily's blog house. Blog house. Uh, blog. <laughs> the Deadly Dolls Soundstop.blogspot.com. This is Quiet Cool. Blogspot.com. Hans's blog. You know, Tim has a new blog, New Glass Eye, coming up soon on Pop Syndicate. Nice. Matt Suzaka at the Paracinema blog. Buy Paracinema magazines from paracinema.net. <laughs> um, You're getting good at this. What else do we have? To, oh, we got to do our con. Why don't we do the? Uh, actually, maybe I'll wait. Uh, remind me in a moment. We got to do the draw for listener. Uh, yes. Content. Um, who else? You actually, know what? You know, I don't know. Something. Actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and do the draw for listener content right now. Let's just go ahead and do it. Okay. Now. So well, what well, I've done? Yeah. Go I ahead. All the names in my beloved Green Bay Packers hat. And Rupert, actually, you said I saw that you're from Wisconsin, buddy. Let me know if you're a cheesehead like me, man. Uh, let's see. Round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. <laughs> Long and meaty. Long and meaty. And <laughs> the next listener content episode will be picked by Alex Akira. Oh, nice. So there we go. Uh, I've put all the names in a hat and picked Alex Akira. So let us know which two films you want to cover. And as soon as we get them in our uh, hands, we yes. will be happy to cover them for you. Just send us an email or, uh, or a voicemail. You can do it either way. But uh, probably email would be quicker because that way we can get on top of uh, whatever they are that we need to cover. So. Uh, I believe that's more of a newer member to the boards, actually, isn't it, Alex Akira? Um, I think Alex kind of lurks more than okay. uh, takes part, but I think they've been around for a little while. It's still reasonably new, but uh, nonetheless. Nice. Can't I can't wait to see what this I don't have a lot of interaction with this person, so I can't wait to see what they pick. Yes. So, okay, uh, congratulations on that. Uh, I think that's everything. Uh, I, again, we don't know. We we probably forget somebody, but I will remember to uh, keep voting for us at podcastalley.com. Keep leaving us iTunes reviews, please. And also, uh, you can follow us on Twitter, which I don't mention very much anymore, but uh, it's just twitter.com slash ggtmc for me and twitter.com slash largewilliam for uh, Mr. Will Large William. We, we kind of come and go on Twitter nowadays. Uh, I, I'm on it a little bit more than Large William is only because I have an iPhone and I, I just sit there and and uh, tweet like a motherfucker. But uh, I do get away from it sometimes because it can become a, a maze of wasted time. <laughs> oh, does it ever. I can, I've wasted three, four hours at a time. And I do want to apologize to everyone. We always implore you to get on the boards and this and that. And then I've been off them. I've been fucking dead in the water on Twitter and on the boards. And I apologize to everyone um, for that. I've just been very, very busy at work. And when I'm at home, I don't get a chance to, to surf because I'm trying to watch movies for the show and spend time with my son and wife. So... I'm terribly sorry that I haven't been on the boards much or on Twitter. Um, and please, everyone, Podcast Alley, we've been taking a bit of a beating on there lately. And, you know, all we ask from you guys is to, you know, if you haven't left us an iTunes review, do so. And vote for us once a month. That, that's all we really ask. Uh, because, like I said, it gives us a, a bit of a tangible look at where we're at uh, beyond the downloads. So uh, we've kind of slumped in recent months. I mean, we're still doing okay, but not as good as we'd like. So get over there and vote for us. Uh, you can thanks yes let's pump it up all right i don't know where that came from <laughs> let's I, pump no, it up. I instantly thought of the mars song pump up the volume <laughs> oh, nice should have had that cued somewhere oh that would have been good all right so i think that's everything and if we forgot anybody again we apologize uh but uh this is craziness all right uh i think with that we'll say our adios adios thanks for listening you can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.